0: Welcome to With Intolerance Podcast, a podcast for machinists, by machinists. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson, and this week I'm joined by Brad Southerd of Southerd Knives and 490 Manufacturing. 490. Well, thanks for joining me, Brad. Thank you for having me. And this is the first one in person, which is kind of cool. It is, for for the listeners,
1: gentle listeners. We are sitting in a lovely climate-controlled room now because, whether you know it or not, Dylan has uh, air conditioning. I in do. the shop now. And as another fellow Arizonan machine shop owner who does not have air conditioning, I'm feeling very luxurious right now. We <laughs> also have very nice chairs with super awesome roller skate or uh,
0: rollerblade wheels. And I don't have that, so I'm feeling pretty uh, awesome. Well, you know, John Grimsmo posted about those a while ago. And I was like... Like three years ago? Yeah. I think that's when I
1: added them to my Amazon cart and then never bought them.
0: Yeah. The, the last... Prime Day or Black Friday, I was like, alright, we need new chairs, like our other chairs. The bolsters had ripped apart and I had taped over pig mat on sure. them, and uh, I was like, alright, I need new chairs, and while I'm there, getting the wheels too. Screw it. I, I think all
1: of my chairs have been dumpster-dived from the dumpsters at my shop. <laughs> Two of them are actually excellent. Like, very nice, comfortable chairs, just terrible wheels.
0: So. Uh, funny story before we, we get into it. Brad was over by your shop at Catalina Brewing oh yeah I guess he bought a he bought something for one of the owners over there nice and I guess he's doing bicycle repairs too one of the owners really I mean yeah. they're, they're super into bicycles so that doesn't surprise me and he mentioned like oh yeah I just laced my own rooms he's like I will hire you right now to be a bicycle mechanic he's like it's impossible to find anybody to do this work right now like do you nice. want a job he's like, like <laughs> I should I should
1: walk across the street or, or, or my parking lot and say hey I can I can also I can also do that yeah or, yeah although I haven't built a wheel in 10 years probably. You'd uh, figure it out I think I still have the tools I, I, I was actually looking at them the other day thinking I should sell them because I haven't used my wheel stand or any of my building wheel building tools
0: since I moved to Arizona <laughs> and that was almost 10 years ago. Well yeah. speaking of the past, how did you get into manufacturing? Solid segue. Solid segue. <laughs> Let's see. I to say how I got into
1: manufacturing is kind of a confusing thing because I never intended to get into manufacturing. It just kind of slowly happened. And even if you look at my knife making career, I, I wasn't into manufacturing. It was head, it was handmade knives. But in order to get into like how I got to where I am, you kind of have to go back to my childhood. So we're going to go back a long time. Okay. But you're not that old, but.
2: It's
1: okay. Well, true. But I had other jobs before this. But in high school, my high school did not have a shop class, didn't have anything like that. And I was a terrible student. Um, I hated school. So I was doing a work-study program because I wanted something interesting to do. So I did a work-study program at a local lumberyard slash mill. And this is back in Fort Collins, Colorado, where I grew up and that, that particular mill, like I I was working in the warehouse. So if somebody ordered lumber, I was the guy that loaded it into your car for you. I was the guy that restocked the shelves of, you know, when you came shopping for the lumber. Um, and this wasn't, I should clarify, this was not like two by fours and pine. This was hardwoods. This was, if you were looking for oak, mahogany, ebony, we pretty much were the premier source for hardwood in Colorado at the time. Oh, wow. But the other thing that shop did, and I think was honestly the primary income and why they were importing and bringing in wood was they did moldings. So if you, and shipped all over the country. So if you ordered, you know, if you wanted white oak with radial flecking and a specific molding pattern, it would go to this company and they would manufacture it. So part of the facility was this manufacturing I, I'm doing air quotes now um,
2: <laughs>
1: air quotes manufacturing because it was really just two or three guys there was another mold shop on a separate location that did huge bulk orders of the you know the, the poplar and the, the maple and the just plain red oak the, the basic stuff that you would find in Home Depot in your local big box stores um, gotcha but in this shop it was the more custom smaller runs but you know where someone would order. A thousand linear feet of something very specific in a very specific lumber. And it was just two guys. So I would watch these two guys do small-scale manufacturing of a specific molding pattern, oftentimes custom-made molding patterns. So they'd be getting in custom-made tools, custom-made blade shapes to cut the shape they were looking for. And I I just learned a lot by watching them. And I'd occasionally get pulled in there when they needed an extra, an extra hand or an extra kid to move stuff around for him basically which is what I was but anyways through that job I met another guy named Tyler who I worked there for several years and honestly I loved that job it was fantastic I often look back on that job and think I didn't quite appreciate how well I was being paid at that job because at the time like I started there when I was 16 and I worked there till I was 19 I believe did not have a good concept of how well I was being paid until right. a decade later, probably. <laughs> um, but I met a guy there who owned a cabinet shop and custom woodworking shop, and we just kind of hit it off. And he hired me. I should note by this point I had dropped out of school. Like I said, I really didn't like school, so I dropped out of school. Started working at this other guy's wood shop, who he did he did manu he did proper manufacturing, but not cnc entirely handmade entirely manual production of wood products and that was my first foray into doing the same operation hundreds and hundreds of times over tediously boring in some cases but also super fun watching the processes that he had developed it was a when i was there it was actually i think he still is a three-man shop he's still open There's just three of us the owner his main guy who was a whiz kid of fixturing. And this guy just came up with all sorts of things. Machines I didn't know existed. He was building out of spare parts they had sitting around. So he built a pantograph. I'd never even heard of a pantograph. He didn't call it a pantograph. He's like, this is just a duplicating router I whipped up out of some T-slot aluminum. (laughs) And I mean, and it was perfect. Wow. It would have made Robin Renzetti proud. (laughs) Um, And, but the, the whole... Anyways, my point of while I was working there, the process of taking a single piece of material and putting it through a series of steps to end up with a finished product in a quick and simple systems that couldn't be broken, that were monkey proof. It was like if you if you follow these steps and do them correctly and load them into the fixtures correctly, this all works just fine. So it was a lot of really cool router fixtures and jigs and stuff. So anyways, that's that was like my first run in with manufacturing, was woodworking, it had nothing to do with metal. Right. And in fact, I had zero interest in metal at this point. But I knew I loved, I loved furniture design, I loved designing things. At this point, I'd already, at, at, at my own um, shop at my house, I had started building guitars because I was interested in guitars and had designed my own. And when I say designed my own, this was pre CAD days, or if CAD existed, it, I couldn't afford it and hadn't learned how to pirate it yet. Right. So I, I I remember, in fact, I still have it. My first acoustic guitar drawing I ever did was on a gigantic 20, 28 inch by uh, six foot piece of paper <laughs> that I would unroll as I needed to on my parents' kitchen table. Wow. And drew it, I mean, I drew it out to full scale and every single thing, every dimension noted that I needed to know. I didn't know what I was doing. I had never, I had no concept of this. Cause like I said, my high school didn't have shop classes. I was just you know, reading guitar building books and was like, well, I need this, I need this. All right, how do I calculate the fret con- constant for the scale length I need? All right, well, I dropped out of math class. So let's figure out how to do this math anyways. So I taught myself the math necessary. Right. Um, anyways, that's beside the point. It's the best kind of learning though. Like I applied learning. I actually love I hated school. I love learning, but I have to apply it to something. If you can get me interested in a topic in a way that is applicable, I I will dive in as far as you can go and learn every nuance and subtopic I can until I get bored or move on to the next thing. Right. I get I get very hyper focused on problems sometimes. <laughs> um so let's see, after years later I decided to go to school for industrial design. Started go, oh I I should no I got my GED, and then a couple years later went to school for industrial design, which I think most people these days know what industrial design was then or nowadays or I should say then most people were like wait you design industrial buildings, no I I design everything and ever anything and everything I think it should be called product design I think it's a more proper name
0: I. I had to do a project in sixth or seventh grade that was like, find a profession you want to do and write a whole paper on right. how you'd accomplish that and like why you want to do that. And industrial design was what I ended up I, writing the whole paper on. I, I loved almost every minute of it. I will say I did end up dropping out of that as
1: well. So I am a high school and a college dropout. But I learned an enormous amount while we were there. And one of the nice things while I was there. One of the nice things about the program I was in was they, which I should say is different than most industrial design programs. They had a focus on if you cannot build it, you have no business designing it. Oh, wow. Huh. Now they, they never said you have to be an expert at it. but they, they basically said, we need you to understand the process so that you can design for manufacture. Because if you cannot, it was a common thing in the school for kids and students to design things that couldn't be built. Right. And I was as guilty of that as anyone. There were many things that at the time I, I designed them, and I was like, I have no idea how to manufacture this, no idea how to accomplish the goal I just set out to make. But they had, I mean, and most of the time this was hobby-level stuff, but hobby-level inje- injection molding machines, they had CNC, or not CNC, nothing was CNC milling or CNC machining at the time I was there, except for a CNC router which I had a lot of fun on in my head. (laughs) Anyways, so I, I started working at the school as, because of my background in woodworking, I started working as the assistant shop foreman for the wood shop. But the guy that was my boss was also the head of the metals labs. So I kind of got free reign in the metals labs as well, even though I knew nothing about what I was doing. I basically knew how to turn on the mill, turn on the lathe, but I didn't really have any concept of what I was doing. Right. But there was another student who was there with me named Jacob. There's no way he's listening to this, but if he is, <laughs> Jacob, you're awesome. You taught me a lot without knowing it. He grew up around a machine shop, and he was the assistant metals shop foreman. Okay. So I taught him a lot about how to do woodworking stuff. He taught me a ton about how to do metalworking. So, you know, he taught me the basics of how to run a bridge port, how to run the lathes. I got certified on how to run them so that I was allowed to run them. And they allowed us, whether they should have, and I'm sure after I left the school, policies changed. <laughs> they, they allowed me to basically make whatever I wanted in my off time on their equipment, which is basically where I started doing knives because this was all happening in Denver, Colorado. I was living in Boulder, Colorado. I was commuting every day to school and every day I would pass the Spider Co factory. And I was already big into knives at this point. I'd had many Spydercos, lots of Benchmades, mostly Spydercos and Benchmades. But I was, you know, I, I would pick up these Spydercos and look at them and be like, huh, this would be really cool if this one had G10 handles instead of this silly plastic fiber stuff. So I would take the whole thing apart, put it back together with G10 scales using the equipment that we had at the school. And like I said, I was into knives. I was a member of the forums, the Co forums, and I think Blade forums at the time. And I would just post, post photos and people would praise or tear them apart or whatever <laughs> people do online, which really hasn't changed. No, um,
0: no it hasn't.
1: But every once in a while someone would be like, sweet, can you do that to my Dragonfly? Can you do that to my Delica? Can you do that whatever? So I just started doing it as a hobby on the weekends when they were allowing me use in the shop, was utilizing their equipment to make pimp knives. So I think at the time. Now nowadays knife pimping is a pretty popular thing. Right. At the time there was like two other people doing it that I knew of. But that was my first forway, foray into knife making, which that certainly wasn't knife making, but the concept and the, the practice of taking apart a bunch of different knives and putting them back together and for the most part making mistakes along the way and then having to figure out what I screwed up, why they weren't going back together to the right way of being like, oh, it's because I accidentally drilled the hole at 91 degrees instead of 90 degrees, so it's not lining up correctly, and it canting the blade, which is making it shut sideways, and I just learned a ton by taking part knives. So I started making, so then of course I, you know, next step logically is, well, they've got these cool knives, but they've all got this stupid, ugly hole in them, even though I love, <laughs> I, I should clarify, I love Spyderco knives, but they, the hole is ugly. Even though I think the function of it is genius. Yeah. Um, Oh
2: yeah.
0: I mean, we're both carrying Spyderco knives
2: We are both carrying Spyderco's today.
1: (laughs) That was not planned. No.
0: But, i lost track of my thoughts, which is fine. So you were making, you were pimping knives. I was pimping knives. And then the next step, I'm guessing, was to make your own knife. Yes, of course. So of course I designed my own first knife. Tried
1: to make it, miserable failure. Tried again, miserable failure. And then the third one took. The third one was functional. And of course, like a crazy person, I don't recommend doing this to aspiring knife makers. Do not start with folding knives. <laughs> do not make things more complicated. Make your first knife be a fixed blade, particularly if you're going to do it by hand. If You're doing things with CNCs, which most most of you are that are listening to this are probably machinists in some sort. That's a different story. But I, I, I did not understand the concept of tolerancing, of... Mechanical engineering. I didn't know any of. I had no idea what I was doing, which meant I had no idea what I was doing wrong. I right. was literally just sticking holes in things, making them pivot and move, and then solving the problem that I created afterwards by reverse engineering. Being like, oh, okay, this is what I did. This is what I did because the school had zero inspection equipment, and even if they'd had it, I wouldn't have known what it was or how to use it. Right. Um, right.
0: Right. Well, I, even for an expert machinist like you've shared a lot of things with me about proper knife building you know like the the pivot on the lock bar and stuff it's not normal tolerancing like it's it's a no, it's different fun. way of designing and yeah. feel and all that and like i think anybody who listens to business of the machining too and hears you know john grimzo talk about like moving the lock bar insert or whatever like a few tenths and getting different feels like it is yeah. it's weird I think there's this weird transition right now where a lot of knife makers are going to cnc and realizing that so much of this feel stuff can be quantified but it's like in weird places like watching his video and going to milterra and having them you know scan cmm all his blades and stuff was really interesting to see
1: oh yeah where things were out and there is
0: absolutely
1: there's both a need for people to quantify it but also when you're hand making a knife it's easy to tweak things by feel it's easy to tweak things by eye, and you don't need to quantify it because you're just doing it by hand. So you're not, you're not trying to repeat the process on the next knife. It, and that that's one of the funny things about knife making is so I I I obviously started as a handmade knife maker. I did not have CNC equipment, and in fact, I was adamantly against CNC for a long time. Um, I, I think I successfully ruined relationships and friendships with a couple of knife makers that are still well known in the field by saying things about them using CNCs publicly, Ooh. much to my own ignorance. Right. So, you know, I think it was, uh, so one of your recent podcasts you guys were talking about the, the stigma of just pushing the green button and out pops your finished product. That's what I thought it was Yeah. Um, because I had, to, when I was at the wood shop at that school, We had a cnc router programming that thing was easy as cake like it was a breeze to program it was a breeze to fixture because it's freaking wood everybody's a hero in wood just like everybody's a hero in aluminum that's the truth if aluminum's easy uh, wood is Um, (laughs) play-doh it it is unbelievably easy to work with if you're comparing if you're comparing it to working with metal and i just that's how i pictured it all was by my by my foray of programming the CNC routers that we had at school and I should say that was my first foray into CNC, CNC was programming that router but right. I had no concept of what g-code was because I never got to look at the code I should I never it was there I just never looked at it right I never took the time to learn what it was and so anyways I was making knives on the weekends and I was doing pretty well at it and so I just kept doing it and kept making little products Utilizing the school's equipment and really pushing the boundaries of what the school was allowing me to do, <laughs> I definitely remember one time when I was, I was making this product called the Rhino Pry, uh, which was one of my first mass products, like that I made, uh, well over five hundred of. Oh wow! Um, that I used. This is this is where the hypocrite comes out because I was bad mouthing CNCs, but utilized water jet to make them a priority. Um, <laughs> make the majority of this product. Um, at the time I didn't see a problem with it. I I didn't, I didn't have a concept of, it was too stupid to know what I was doing. But, so I was making those little titanium parts on the bridge port there. Like I, I'd get the water jet blanks and then modify them on the bridge port. Mm-hmm. And I was face milling titanium. And my boss's boss walks in and is watching me use the school's face mill, indexable, indexable face mills. Looking back, way too high of SFM, way too high of RPMs, and I'm hogging off titanium. <laughs> shooting <laughs> chunks of titanium across the room. Um, it was working. Surface finish was terrible, but that's fine. I was cleaning it up on a grinder. I didn't know what I would get. Anyways. <gasps> oh, man. So yeah, that was, that was, I think, the first time I had a conversation of, hey, hey, Brad, this is not what this equipment was intended for. Stop producing things at our shop. Right? He's like, we don't mind it for the most part, but stop abusing our tools to accomplish whatever it is you were trying to to do. And that's when I started taking the money I was making from these little things and buying my own equipment. So it started by I bought myself a drill press. Then I bought myself a real proper two by 72 knife making grinder. And of course that all started. And yeah, eventually I found on Craigslist a Harbor Freight benchtop mill, which was my first personal milling machine. And I still happen to like, and still have actually, and all of this was in my bedroom at home. Right. So that I wasn't, when I was at school, I was utilizing, I was working at the school. And at home, I was doing the stupid things with the machines, with my own machines in my own bedroom right next to my pillow. <laughs> <So> <laughs> me, and, me and John Saunders in the early days, I can I can, I can can bond with him on the metal shavings on the pillow. Ooh. Uh, I was not married at the time, though, so. I, 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 I imagine believe, not so. Uh, I believe he was at the time, <laughs> <laughs> when he had the tag mini-mill next to his, uh. Next day's bed. So yeah, and I I slowly just, as I grew the business and kept hand, making knives, you know, with hand equipment, hand equipment, using manual machining operations, I started learning more, started realizing, oh, I'm, so from woodworking, I knew that for the most part, when people are drilling in, in wood, you adjust the RPM by sound. You can just kind of hear when it's cutting correctly and when it's not. And I was using that same method in metalworking because that's what I knew. And then I finally started to realize, oh, there's quantifiable numbers for this (laughs) stuff. If I'm using an eighth-inch carbide drill bit in titanium, it should be spinning at this RPM. Cool. I can do that. Started actually using proper, like, feet or speeds. I was not using proper feeds because I was still doing it by hand, and I had no way of quantifying the speeds I was moving at, but started learning some of the stuff, and again by taking apart other people's knives and continually, continually learning from my own mistakes. I was getting better at engineering of the knives too, and then at some point it dawned on me that the locking mechanism of most modern frame locks and liner locks is nothing more than a locking taper. It is identical in fact almost to the same angle as the face of an r8 collet oh interesting or or, or r8 yeah yeah and i was like wait that's engineering and i went and picked up some engineering books from the library and started studying locking tapers and how they functioned and like my knowledge went from nothing to whatever those books contained in like three days because I think that's how long it took me to get through those books. Okay. Um, and I just started realizing I didn't, I had no no concept of what I was doing before that and all of a sudden I was learning a little bit about tolerancing, I was learning about the actual movement of materials and locking angles and then at some point somebody somewhere said something about the teeth, you know, feet per tooth and abrasives are basically the same thing. Right but it never dawned on me that like oh different grinding speeds are going to get different results also because it's just a bunch of little cutting teeth yeah just at a very different system so I started adjusting grinding speeds and all of a sudden I was like wait
2: grinding is really easy
1: (laughs) and I I honestly don't think most knife makers ever think of that but I started looking at the manufacturer's recommendations for how to grind stuff like for what SFM and RPMs to use and calculating how, how I was grinding and
0: life started getting easier. So was this still before or concurrently with you approaching Spider Spyderco and, and bugging them oh, and all that stuff?
1: That's a good question.
0: Because that story, like, I, I had known that you had had collaborations with Spider Spyderco, but I think the backstory on that whole thing is inspirational and funny and all the all, sure. all good things. Sure. So uh, during this whole time, I was
1: still living in Boulder. And during a lot of this, I was commuting back and forth to, to, to and from school to Denver so I was passing the Co facility every single day and pretty much every single day I stopped and said hello to the point that I was driving everybody in the company insane because every time I was there Eric the current president or Sal the president then would walk by or one of the engineers would walk by and I would start pestering them with questions asking about the Rockwell hardnesses of this and that and trying to understand the decisions they were making in the knives that I'm, you know, they had this showroom then, beautiful showroom, and they had all their, like, everything that they were currently producing there, and they also had a backlog, like, a back history of, like, the history showcase, and I think I'd looked at every single knife in, that they had, and I, every day I was getting some sort of question answered, to the point where I didn't find out two years later, they had stuck a chair in the showroom just for me to sit in to wait till I watched one of them walk by and start (laughs) asking them questions. But every time I would learn something, and so I slowly, by this point I'd been designing knives, so I had a bunch of designs all on paper because, again, I didn't have CAD software yet. I knew how to use AutoCAD at this point because we had, that that was a class we had in school, but I didn't have a personal copy of it because educational licenses weren't a thing then. Right. But I'd start designing all these knives and I was presenting the designs to Eric and Sal hoping to get feedback hoping eventually it might turn into something but like mostly looking for feedback and they kept giving me feedback years later again I found out they did not do that that was an, like they rarely would give feedback on designs it would be yes or no as to whether or not we'll produce it but they would rarely give feedback So I actually have letters from Sal that Sal would write to me after the fact, giving me, like, sometimes hard-to-hear feedback on a knife design. Um, But eventually they took one. I mean, I I don't know how many were rejected. I've lost count. (laughs) Um, There's ones I still wish they would have taken, because I'm like, this would have been an awesome knife with them. But uh, they took one. And that was, uh, I called it the AWT. To them, it was just the Southern Flipper which is the one I currently have in my pocket today. In fact, the one I have in my pocket was the very first one off the production line when they first started producing it. Really? That's so cool. So yeah, they produced that knife and they did an absolute stellar job at it. Every single mistake that is on that knife is 100% me because they copied my design that I gave to them identically. Right. And one of the things that I found funny, again, knowing what I know now, I totally understand why they do this. They preferred that makers send them a prototype they want a physical object they could care less about your drawings they could care less about your engineering specs because shocker knife makers have no idea how to do engineering and tolerances.
0: <laughs> well it goes back to your your industrial design days of like yeah but how do you make it like, right if you can't make it how are we supposed to make it right um so they took my action my legitimate handmade prototype and
1: I I don't know whether they, I don't know, actually, I I assumed they were using 3D scanning, because that seems like something they would do. If not, they definitely had an engineer take the whole thing apart, scan every object, and draw to the contours that I had done. Because there's one contour on the knife that still, to this day, drives me bonkers every time I see it, because he copied it identically from what I gave him. Right. But I made that by hand. So it was perfectly blended. I had done a radius on the handle, like a a bullnose radius uh, over a corner. Mm Mm-hmm. I was just trying to do it to make the transition smooth, but he copied that exact radius, but that radius was not consistent. It changed constantly, because I was just trying to make it feel and look good. Right. Whereas he took that individual part outside of the assembly, scanned it, drew it exactly, and so it never matched the contour on the handle itself. So the pocket clip contour never perfectly matched the handle contour. (laughs) Um, And every time I look at that pocket clip, I'm just like, I cringe. Um, Oh, man. So. Yeah. Anyways, at some point in along all of this, I met John Grimsmo at one of the knife shows. I think it was his first one. I think it was the second USN gathering show. And I had already been watching this kid. I say kid, we're the same age. But to me at the time, he was a kid for some reason. I don't know why. Um, watching this guy attempt to do knife making on his Knife Making Tuesdays on YouTube... And then he showed up at this knife show, and I'm looking at his his Manix scales, and he was doing knife pimping. Right. Which by this point I'd kind of stopped doing knife pimping. I'd been making my own knives long enough that I didn't have time to do knife pimping, even though I still enjoyed it. But I'm looking at his parts, and I'm like, these are, these are, they seem terrible to me. But Gosh. like, but they're done entirely on CNC. he didn't do any handwork on this, huh? And it just like dawned on me that like, wait, you mean I don't have to hand cut this out with a bandsaw, or grind all the material away? I don't. I don't have to treat the material. It it. It never clicked in my mind that the same processes I had been using on CNC routing using the routers at school could also be done metalworking. Right. Until I was physically holding
0: his products. That's and, interesting, I had no idea that the influence went that direction. It, in the CNC machining realm, it definitely did, Yeah, and
1: we became friends, we just started talking and he kept asking me all these questions about knife making, so I was teaching him everything I was learning about knife making and about locking tapers and how different tolerances that I had begun to quantify, because I had by this point started to quantify a significant number of tolerances that I was able to quantify and of course I'd also gotten a lot more tools by then by this point I had a real mill surface grinders, multiple other grinders I, I'd been slowly adding to my equipment selection of my own and he started getting me into CNC machining and I started watching John Saunders videos about the same time which I think was still tag days for him, Right. but I think both of them got a Tormac about the same time And and I was like hey I could actually afford one of these machines this I could actually make happen Unfortunately, I guess, did not end up buying a Tormach mill, but a buddy who would be great on this podcast. to would be entertaining. Jason? Jason from Prometheus Design or I love that DarkSucks.com. Yeah. He makes awesome flashlights. Mine okay. is currently in my backpack. I just look down in my pocket. It's not there, <laughs> which is where it normally lives. I have multiples of his flashlights. But yeah, he was selling his first milling machine, which was a 1991 VF1. The Icebox. Six, a Haas 1991 VF1. Yeah, it's plastic and fantastic. Um, <laughs> it, uh, so yeah, I bought that thing from him, saved up every penny I had, paid him cash for it, he shipped it out to me. I had no idea, I'd never even turned on or seen in person a VMC. And this thing showed up at my door and I'm like, kid in a candy store, I've never been so excited. Turned this thing on, Have no idea what I'm doing. Got it hooked up, got it leveled out, you know, got it, I, for the most part, Set it up myself, got it ready to go. But I did have a hostek come out and just check it out. So he did a bar ball test on it, just because he was there and had it with him. So, and it was holding awesome tolerances, actually, for what it for a 1991 VF1. That's it was crazy. still holding. It was still holding spec from brand new days. Wow! And what's funny is even Jason's programs were still in it, so I could have made Jason's lights with it because he'd left all of his stuff in there. Um, <laughs> but uh, so yeah, I started utilizing that and learning how to use it. Along this process, I got Fusion 360 and i already had SolidWorks. And so I just started, and I think I had
0: a copy of Inventor also. I had a lot of pirated software. I think we've all started with yeah. that before Fusion. Sorry, was, There was no, uh, <laughs> there, there was no option before fusion it was like you can have educational versions that are useless to actual manufacturing i did use a education version of
1: solidworks for a really long time me too i mean up until the day they finally just said you need to send us another proof of that you're currently a student or we will remove it yeah by this point i had gotten married my wife was still a forever student so (laughs) i used her email for a while like i was able to like i think long past I, when I had dropped out of school, I was still utilizing an education version of SOLIDWORKS for most of my design stuff.
0: I used to, to search, like mine would expire, and then I would search online for schools that weren't smart enough to put their SOLIDWORKS license code, their student license code, the kit code behind a paywall. Sure. So I'd be like, oh, this year I'm using the University of Iowa's never thought student, of that. student kit code because <laughs> nice. people just didn't think to put it behind a paywall. Obviously, they all these companies have gotten smarter by now. Yes. But anyway. and, and of course, I'm joking. I would never do any of those things. Sure, we never did any of this. <laughs> so you've got Ahas. We're going to edit you're, all of this out, right? <laughs> you're, you're in Tucson by this point?
1: Yes. Sorry, by this point, I had moved to Tucson. I did not have any CNC equipment before moving to Tucson. Okay. So around all this time that I was saving up for the machine, I got the shop I'm currently in. I had moved my shop a ton by this point, but had been mostly working at home. But I knew... I, I can't fit a CNC machine inside of a two car garage. Looking back, I could have absolutely fit a CNC machine inside of that two car garage. It had super high ceilings, it was awesome. Um, <laughs> but it was a rental, and I couldn't, there, there, there wasn't power. Right. Like, and I spent every penny I had buying the machine and buying the first few end mill holders and collar holders and ER, you know, the basics to get the machine running, and then spent every penny left I had on a Hymer so I knew how to find the part. And I think I bought a couple of Kurt vices at this point. But I had no money left, so I was like, I can't afford to buy a phase converter and all that stuff to run this at home, much less my landlord would have, he would have thrown us out instantaneously. Oh really? If I had done that, yeah. He he didn't like that I was doing knife making in the garage. So I very much had to keep my garage door closed. Oh wow. To keep from uh, anybody in the neighborhood knowing what I was doing there. Huh. Um, so yeah. So I got my first CNC and quickly realized how much of an idiot I was when I had been bad mouthing CNC knife makers previously. Quickly realized I knew nothing about what I was doing but was having way too much fun. Like it was I was hooked instantaneously. I think the first part that I made or the first thing I did was I by this point I was making I was having some production stuff done. Like, I, I'd had multiple spider Spydercos under my belt at this point, but I was also doing CNC production with another company. Like, I was having them produce some parts for me, and then the parts would come back to me, and I'd finish them out and finish out the blades and do all the finish work and assemble the knives and sell those. And those were my first performance series knives. But a batch of parts came in that were out of spec. In fairness, they were not out of spec. I never gave specs on this particular detail. Oh. So he was not out of specs, which is why I was like, I can't. Like I told you to do this hole, I never gave you a tolerance on it. So, because I, I didn't know any better, I've learned since. I'm like, oh, tolerance this stuff. <laughs> it, there's a reason for tolerances. Yeah. Um, I had to modify all of them, so I had like 400 handles that I had to remount, find and, you know, find. So I designed fixtures and set it up and hand loaded every one of these 300, 400 parts. Oof! And fixed the ball bearing pockets because the ball bearing pockets were too too, too shallow? shallow
0: well that's good um at least they were that
1: yeah. direction they were too shallow and the diameter was too tight because i was putting in bearings that were 375 thousands and he hit 375 thousands which means i had an interference fit
0: yep size um, on size does not like go he, he,
1: <laughs> i didn't think to tell him differently because i
0: yeah yeah lessons learned the hard way i'm really good at that so but they were good lessons to learn, too. Yeah. I mean, it's, it sucks that, yeah, you had to, you know, redo 400
1: handles, but... Sure, sure. And, of course, at the same time, I was starting to design my next production knife, which I had all sorts of parts that I was both having done locally here in town. And by this point, I'd learned my lesson on some some tolerancing and was providing the correct tolerances. So I had a local machine shop machine the handles on a bunch of tolks, and which was my second performance series project. And then I was doing the rest of it at my own shop. And I had all these round parts that I was making with a mill. And I was like, this is this is stupid. Why why don't I get a lathe? Hey, that John Brinsmo buddy of mine just got a Tormach lathe. I'll buy one too. So I did. Bought a Tormach lathe, which we've talked about before off air. I have a love-hate relationship with. For the most part, it does what I ask it to. But when it doesn't, it's the most frustrating piece of machinery I've ever had.
0: Yeah, but it does good work. It does. When
2: like,
1: it's
0: on, it's actually quite impressive what it's capable of. I think um, that's a, a common thread to amongst all of my guests. Like anybody who has had Tormux. Yeah. I mean, they may have varying opinions on the mills, but everybody who has the lathe is like, you know, it's it's for the price, really good. Particularly, the price is a lot different now. Yeah. But like I, I,
1: I mean, I think my my serial number is one of the few under one hundred. So it's it's a lower serial number. It was one of the early ones, I believe, in the first batch. I don't know how big the first batch was. But, yeah, there's some quirks on that particular machine that I know they have since solved. And then I one of my other frustrations with it, which isn't a frustration as much as just it was a transition period for Tormach. If you guys listen to Business and Machining, which I'm sure you all do, I think it was a couple episodes ago John Saunders was referencing the death of the owner.
0: Yeah, of I had no idea that whole thing went um, on until he right. said something. So Greg, the owner of the company, apparently
1: personally inspected every machine that left the building. Like before it left, he'd sign off on the machines and, and double check that everything was there. Like he was the guy. I found out a couple months afterwards that my machine was the last one he signed out. Really? Um, he died the weekend after mine shipped. Oh my goodness! Us. But because of that. When I first got the machines, the problems I had, I was calling up to try to get help. And their entire support department had, I guess, at the, pe- the people that were in support were the ones that moved into management and moved into the ownership positions and oh. taking over as CEO. So the really, really experienced techs in support were now in a different role. And I just got stuck in this weird limbo. So I had several problems with the machine early on that have actually since been very easily solved but like for that first year i could not get any support whatsoever oh wow um, it was very very frustrating to be like i just spent all this money on this machine and it's the only brand new machine i've ever bought right couldn't get the support i needed. i secretly hope that there's somebody at home right now trying to pick out what is happening behind us outside yeah. the
0: door for for anybody oh, who's I'm listening kidding. my my neighbor is right, right. very loud so i apologize and, and he's directly outside the door right now yeah it's great
1: uh. <laughs> <laughs> sorry i keep <laughs> rambling and you as 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 you know from us hanging out together previously i can keep talking forever
0: well no, no, so. this is why i had you on but so how do we go you, you bought that how did we get to your newest machine sure i mean my newest machine is still used but i quickly realized this machine
1: i bought from jason the haas vf1 it had a number of not problems. In fact, it's still a great machine, and I still use it every single day. That's a um, common thread with you, too. I, like you still have your Harbor Freight Belt. Like I do. Um, you hang on we, to stuff. We can we can talk about what I still have and what I need to get rid of. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just never get rid of anything. I'm kind of a machine hoarder. I love machines. But 1991, machine memory was microscopic. I have eight megs is my entire memory. Which is about five thousand two hundred and thirty three lines of code.
0: I say about, it's exactly. Yeah, um, that that machine over there I'm pointing towards the Kitamura has a five twelve K. So nice. eight megs would be amazing. <laughs> Maybe it's only eight it's I don't even
1: it's it's silly small. It's five thousand <laughs> something lines of code. It's a silly That's small nothing, amount. Yeah. Which meant three D surfacing couldn't do any of it. Right. Couldn't I mean I I just couldn't do a lot of things that I was like wanting to do. And as, as I referenced earlier, the school I went to said, don't design anything you can't manufacture. So I had all these, like by this point I was really into the computer and the CAD. And so I was designing all these things, figure out how to machine in the computer things I could not make because I could never get machining to correctly work on this. It would always get stuck in the buffer somewhere and I would lose generally at around 20,000 lines of code every time the machine would error out in some way. Oh, wow. Um, and I've still never figured out how to solve that. Huh? But what it did get me really, really good at was manually editing code. Because I could. I figured out there's a bunch of silly excess code that the post was popping out that wasn't necessary. I have since learned how to edit posts to
2: cut <laughs> that stuff out.
1: So I have my own post that I created for this super old Haas that cuts out a bunch of extraneous codes that are unnecessary to keep programs really small. But I've also just learned how to program and utilize smoothing and when to utilize smoothing, when not to utilize smoothing, Oh yeah. when to utilize different techniques to, to lower the size of the file so that I could actually run it on this machine.
0: Oh yeah, um, like subprograms, smoothing plus tolerance oh, yeah. values, yeah. Absolutely. I, you I can, know those for sure. You can,
1: yeah, when you start manually editing code, it can, you can learn a lot of things. And along along that same lines, when I bought my Tormach lathe, Tormach did not have a post down for the machine yet. They had a... We'll call it a beta of a post. It was completely non-functional. <laughs> um, it only worked if you had the gang, gang tooling machine. I bought the lathe with the turret. It did not work for the turret. Right. So I had to learn how to... I basically like was utilizing fusion to spit out the basic code, but oftentimes I would have to go in there and manually edit it to make it do what I actually want it. Right. So I know like some people give uh, John Grimson a flack and I know John Saunders does for
0: handwriting lathe code. I got really good at handwriting lathe codes. But so I still, I still To be write honest, lathe code. most lathe people I know, write their own lathe code. It's really easy. Like I I <laughs> I know very few people that just take CAM posted code and run with it. Like right. so it's it sucks that that's the case, but like I, I've yet to see a lathe program come out of Fusion or HSM or whatever that you're like, yeah, that looks great. Let's run it. Like I, maybe part maker with a really good post. Fusion's got some now that, that it can do it now with the Tormach,
1: where I can spit the code out the way I want. Right. But even then, I still go in and like manually tweak bits because I'm like, oh, this is this lead in is silly long. I don't need it this long. Right. I need this things that. In some cases, it's things that would take me longer to go find the setting in Fusion on how to change it, than it will to just manually change the code. Right. So yeah. Um, and then particularly when like a lot of the parts I was making, I was doing duplication. Like I was I was I was using uh, automation.
0: Right. Bar puller. Totally
1: lost track of my words there for a minute. Automation. So yeah, I was using a bar puller, and so like Fusion can't do that. Right. It can't. It can't. So you'd have to program program the bar problem manually and set up how many times you wanted to run and and this is where me and John Grimsmo definitely became friends because like we were already <laughs> friends by this point <laughs> but like we just started talking macros back and forth and like wait how do we set this up so that we just type in the number like type in the how long the bar is it tells us how many parts can be made out of this bar and automatically sets the program to duplicate that many times based on what number you just input
0: right yeah yeah you guys are both big so, Macro B nerds, yeah. and I love it, because like well, that's something I need to get more and more into. That was probably hands down the reason I bought my newest machine, which, wow, that was a
1: very long way to get there. <laughs> um, get there eventually, guys. So I have, I say it's not new at all, it's a 1990, not 19, 2008 Haas VF2 with 5-axis, even though I do not use the 5-axis drumming, I pulled that off the machine and to make more of you cringe, I pulled it into two pieces and turned it into two fourth axes.
0: I was going to say, it's one of um, the old ones. It's one or, of the old ones. Where they just were like, was, well, let's stack yeah, two yeah, axes on the same um, thing.
1: But I, I bought this machine from a jewelry shop that did titanium machining, and uh, they were making rings and stuff with it, so they had a trunnion on it, right. five axis, and I was just like, I, I don't need this at the moment. So the moment, the day I got the machine, I bolted on two Pearson pallets and had never looked back. Those things are fantastic. Right, but it has probing. But it has programming, that was so allows thing. me to write macros. So I yeah. started definitely doing things where there, there's tolerances on knives now that I realize are incredibly important. And like when you're doing ball bearings and knives, the stack of ball bearings stacked with the blade thickness have to be the exact same thickness of the backspacer. And if I'm making the backspacers and they're all the same thickness, I need to make sure the bearing pockets are the right depth. So I set up programs to probe the bearing pocket, do math, Recut it to the correct one based on what it actually probed at, and it just kind of uh, snowballed from there. And I, probing is my favorite thing in the world. I have a lot of programs now that utilize far more probing than is necessary, but the kind of the way I look at it, which uh, this is this is why me and John are friends. But very much, uh, speed is nice, but consistency and process reliability. Are awesome.
2: Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I think a lot of people think like, oh, I have to only be either probing for size or probing for location. But there's like so many ways to use it as error checking and things. Like Like at work, actually, I'm just running a part where at one point there's an MO and you have to pull off the outside because it's more or less a window machine part mm-hmm. and pull the fixturing pins out of the, the fixture. Otherwise, it'll, you'll get hit with the next coming and finishing end mill. Sure. And I just come in after that mo, and plunge the probe down on both of the pinhole locations in a protected move, and it's that's like right. if they're there, it airs out. Right. And because uh, I I know like well I forget the pins, probably not. Will the next person or this Some person days. in five years who's running this forget the pins? For sure. Right. Like guaranteed. Right. So
2: absolutely.
0: Yeah. And like stuff the- like that. That's amazing. Yeah, and there's like a lot of.
1: So a lot, of, a lot of listeners are going to cringe at this point. But so I did, I did my first two performance series projects were done, the first one was done almost entirely out of house, and I did final finishing and assembly. Second one was done half and half, where I did half the manufacturing. I had somebody else here in town do the rest of it. And then the, the third one, which is onto the mini-tolk, I pulled entirely in-house, because I was tired of dealing with the frustrations of other shops, which really... Most of my frustrations with other shops solely comes down to my lack of knowledge and how to communicate with machine shops, which I did not know at the time. Yeah. I now realize any problems I pretty much have ever had have been due to me not defining tolerances as tightly as I
0: should, or being too loose on them, or almost entirely due to my engineering failures, so. So you mentioned the What what is your current lineup? And then how does your business currently proceed? Because you're not really doing performance line knives anymore. I, during most of COVID, I kind of stopped doing the performance series projects
1: because I was having a hard time finding materials for one. Okay. And then I, my hours working, I mean, that was just kind of a COVID thing. So the performance series mini talk in particular is coming back very soon. Oh, awesome. Um, I also have a couple of new version, new knives that I'm working on that will come out as performance series projects. But the whole concept behind the performance series projects was to give my hands a rest. Mm -hmm. Because I was hand-making knives for the most part. And even when I got CNC, I was still doing hand-grinding, hand-finishing. Because I was never happy with the finishes I was getting off the machine. So I hand-stoned every single finish and and perfected. And that's a lot of fun, and actually I love doing it. It is just a very exhausting way to make a living.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I remember... The story I tell the people when I'm talking about like your, your level of perfection, is when Brad and I came by the shop and you were showing us that pearl inlaid, and you're like, yeah, this one's scrap. And we we're like, why? It looks so pretty. You're like, well, there's that tiny line there, and like, I couldn't see it until you like physically pointed it out to me, and then I was like, that's enough to scrap. And you're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's. I still have that one that one part sitting around, and it was gorgeous. Like it, it to me was more than perfect for a knife but you could see it under a microscope yeah, yeah yeah exactly you know what i've never done to one of my knives
1: look at it under a microscope <laughs> i wish more of my customers would like you i have definitely had customers send knives back to me saying when i look at this under 20 times magnification there's a scratch here and it makes me want to pull my hair out <sighs> it's amazing i'm not bald i will say of most of my customers they're fantastic there's like five of all of my customers of all time that are like that, and they make me hate it
0: sometimes. But that's yeah. the. Uh... But but you're most well known yeah. for your customs, I for which sure, are, which are insane. Like they're so cool. The, the right. pictures that I posted on, on the stories for you, like I, I just there's some of them that are by far some of the nicest looking knives I've seen. Oh, thank you. So yeah, and then I,
1: I guess also during COVID, I kind of just started I. I I haven't really i guess alluded to the fact that the fact is i love to build anything i make a living making knives but i love to make things you know if you, if any of you guys are uh tested.com fans and are like keep up with adam savage and what he's doing and he always talks about the make movement
2: mm-hmm.
1: every time he talks to someone i'm like oh yeah i've made that i've done that i've done that because if i can learn how to make it i want to learn i, I will make it
2: right
0: so is that where 490 490- that's where,
1: that's where 490 manufacturing came from. Okay. Because I needed I needed a way to... I, I kept coming up with projects that I'm like, this actually might have market potential. Like, like I was making them for myself, and sometimes I'm like, ooh, I could sell, you know, dozens of these. <laughs> um, maybe I can find those other dozen people that want this stupid thing I just made for myself because I wanted it. And so I started 490 manufacturing just as a silly way to make this stupid stuff that was keeping me interested because that is one thing like i've now been making knives for 14 years and i love the manufacturing side of it the more and more i've done it the more i have fallen in love with manufacturing and fallen out of love with making knives so now knives are just a tool of enjoying manufacturing even though i still love knives just not not in the same allure i had when i first got into it and the obsession with it right um so I just love manufacturing now at this point, and I needed a way to make other things that had nothing to do with knives and a business to market them. Now I'm terrible at marketing, which is why, I like, at yeah,
0: 490 Manufacturing has, like, 200 followers. But you, you've done pretty well with it. I mean, you're, you, your biggest product has been guitar knobs. Right, right. And um, it, you're constantly telling me how you're sold out or having to make more. And... I, I, I That was a product I started
1: making because I wanted a higher quality guitar knob that I couldn't find. Um, and I'm like, well, I got this cool lathe. I got some skills. Let's see what I can come up with. And then I was like, well, if I'm going to make three for my guitar, I might as well make 30 and just see what happens. And I stuck them on Etsy. And they sold. Yeah. And I was like, cool. I guess I'll make more. Alright. They made more. They sold. Right. And I'm like, well, let's come up with some different variations and different sizes and different things. And all of a sudden, these Stupidly expensive, extremely difficult to make guitar knobs. I was I was selling hundreds a month, right? And it basically is what keeps my lathe busy full time. Like that—that's all my lathe does right now. I can't. Well, I guess yesterday I made knife parts on it. Um, <laughs> but like every once in a while, I go over there and make some Hello. spacers and pivots and things like that. But for the most part, it's making guitar parts. Yeah, um, that's insane. And that's something I'd love to do more of. I wish I had more time. That's the one problem with being a one man business at the moment. And I guess that's something we didn't cover is that at various points I've had employees working for me and doing stuff like that. So my business has grown and shrunk at various different times.
0: Welcome back guys. So we had a little bit of a mistake last week. Uh, My computer stopped recording about halfway through the episode. So we got through Brad's backstory and then missed all, all the good stuff from the second half. So if we repeat anything this time, forgive us. It's been a week and we're just going to jump back into it. So thanks for joining me again, Brad, for two weeks in a row. I appreciate it. Uh, absolutely. And hopefully this time the, the audio is crisper, clearer.
1: Less, yeah. uh, yes, less cars backing up in the background.
0: Yeah. Cars, saws, you know what, when we both got there at the shop yesterday or last week, it was like great audio. There's nobody there working yet. And then. It seemed like the second we hit record, everybody was like, all right, time to move every single truck, cut all the wood and start working on all the cars. And let's make sure to, you know, talk to as many customers about
1: their cars right in front of the work <laughs> as loudly as possible. Yeah. Even though it isn't been informed, that's just, uh, that's just John and that's awesome.
0: Oh Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to think, uh, where we were at, but, uh, we, we know how you got into manufacturing. We know what your company is doing. Maybe what, what's been going on this week before we jump into, uh, questions, you know, what have you been working on? I, I know you posted a couple of cool things. Sure. I,
1: this week I've been, I've been working on a, a new batch of customs. I say batch, cause it's not, I don't tend to batch customs, but a, as anyone with CNC machines know, you set up something once, it's a lot easier to just do it twice. Or three times because you go through all the effort of doing the setup and, and programming it's, it's yeah it's just a lot easier to do it multiple times and i had two customers that ordered the same model so it was just like eh, let's just make both of these at once and i might as well make a couple others at the same time just to to sell on the side so i've been working on those uh this week that uh, we'll, we'll, we'll say yesterday that i spent most of the day surface grinding those in because i i surface grind them Soft to almost nominal thickness, and then heat treat because I want the final flatness and tolerancing to come in after heat treat. Because for one, they dimensionally change ever so slightly in heat treat. Um, generally marginal enough that it doesn't matter, but it is a thing; it does exist. So I I tend to final up the pivot sizes, and various details in the heat, or, and then surface grind after heat treat, but uh. What should have taken like 45 minutes took me like four hours yesterday because half of the blades I was doing were steel. Oh, cool. Which for those of you that don't know, cause I'm, I, sometimes I talk as if I'm talking to all knife makers
0: or knife junkies, and I realized most machinists are not knife makers. So no, um, no, but I will say, I think the Venn diagram of machinists and knife owners or knife enjoyers does overlap quite a bit. That is. Probably true. That's <laughs> that's probably quite true. So the
1: surface grinding of damaged steel blades is something I have not yet perfected. They tend to work on me. Oh really? Where when you're you surface grinding thin material anyways, particularly thin four hundred series stainless steels, they tend to move anyways ever so slightly, but you know, when getting the right stone, coolants, cut speed you know, feeds and speeds, you 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 can manage it and mitigate it. And I've gotten it to the point that with a handful of steels, I, I can do it very predictably and I know exactly what's going to happen as long as something doesn't, you know, the moment something warps mid cut, it starts getting worse because it tends to warp into the, into the wheel, which is a very bad thing.
0: Um, right. Oh, and not to cut you off, but I did cut you off when you were describing what demo steel is, you know, a, a pattern steel. For anybody who doesn't know. Oh, that's okay. I am easily distractible. Yeah, I I would have distracted my own
1: thought process. So yeah, damasteel is, many people have heard of Damascus steel, but if you haven't that, it is two different alloys of steel, forge welded together in a pattern, and then folded it and forge welded. Damasteel is kind of like a brand name Kleenex. It is a Damascus steel. It is a specifically stainless Damascus steel out of Sweden. It is absolutely fantastic stuff. As far as the stainless steel, Damascus steels I have used, uh, has the best egg retention. Okay. Uh, They have the clean What, what alloys are there in there? RWL 34 is the main one, which is basically a excessively clean version of CPM 154. Oh, really? And then the other, oh, P. I can't remember the last, the other alloy, It starts with a P I should know this considering how often I use damn steel. Is it like a Sandvik chemistry or something? You know, I actually don't know much about the other alloy, which is why I can't remember it. It's not an alloy I have used in a homogenous steel. It's not one I've used all on its own. Okay. I have used RWL 34. It is seriously the cleanest steel I have ever worked.
0: Um, yeah. Well, I, I think a lot of listeners will know that as, you know, of from John's Cribsmo's knives, like I think all of them are R.W.L. Well, yeah, exactly. Damascus steel ones. Yeah, it's honestly, if it
1: were easier for me to get, I'd probably make it one of my standard. Just I'd use it all the time. But coming from Sweden, it gets a lot cheaper when you start ordering it in bulk directly from them, and it also just takes a while. Right. So I don't tend to work with them because for one, I like using U.S. made products when possible. But it is it I. I've worked with very few steels that polish and take a, take a shine quite as nicely as RWL 34. And unless you've started, unless you've made knives and worked and studied and looked at a lot of the structure of the steel, even in some of the high-end powder metallurgy that we're getting out of the United States, you'll still find bits of contaminants and you can see the carbide structure every once in a while, you can just see the crystalline structure of the steel. I mean, assuming you're nerding out a lot, it, I, it, the consistency with which RWL 34 is made, I'd love to see their process in person. Cause I'd love to understand what it is they're doing and why it's so clean.
0: Well, that's really cool to hear because I know, like I've, I've watched quite a few knife YouTubers or whatever, and I feel like the easy criticism about the Rask or the Norseman or whatever is like, oh, why are they still using this old tech stainless, you know, and people are like, oh, there's so, so many new Steels I'd like to see in these blades, but it, it's cool to hear that there's a very good reason to continue using it, you know? Oh, absolutely. and particularly when you're using
1: it the way John Grimsmo is using it, where he is both machining his bevels in, in the current and grinding his bevels in the current, when you are processing it that way, it, it, the consistency of the steel is very important. The last thing you'd want is as you're sitting there grinding it in a machine in a very predictable method, very controlled method to hit a irid carbide and all of a sudden it heats up just slightly more and warps the blade mid grinding. When I'm hand making a blade, hand grinding a blade, that's not a big deal. That's easy to control because I'm not, my hands as much as I wish they were, are not robotic. They, they make mistakes. They slip, they scrap knives because my hands are fallible. Also means I could do things. His machine can't, but that's okay. Actually, I shouldn't say that because every time I've said, Josh, you you can't do that. He is
0: very much proof for all. (laughs) So. To me about custom washers, because you also posted about Oh, washers. Um, I did.
1: I, I posted, I posted some custom washers I made this week. I obviously, for the most part, I'm known for my flippers and my ball bearing knives. But one of the things I definitely start, I started getting into a couple years ago was making more manual folders, which is funny because now I'm making a lot more manual folders, but I've always, I guess it's true in anything. The more, the more support you have of the blade or of a, any sort of pivoting object, the more support you have around the motion, the stronger the motion will be, so you want the largest bearing surface you can get away with. You want the largest, you know, that's why. Fidals are well known because of their giant boxways that have a lot more support going into them, even than linear rails or various methods. you got more support, more area of surface. So, right. I started making my own washers because I was like, well, I could put this one inch diameter on the show side of the knife. And I called the show side the rattle. If you were looking at a knife that had it open and you had the blade pointing to the left, Generally the logo side is what i call the show side, but um, right. The non-lock bar side, the non-lock bar side, for those of you that, um, are familiar with frame locks or liner locks, you can do a larger diameter over there because there's Mm -hmm. nothing impeding its path. So you can get an enormous diameter washer over there, but oftentimes you have to do this super tiny diameter washer on the other side in order to clear the lock bar. And I just kept getting annoyed at that. I'm like, wait, why, why do I need to do this? How big can I get these? Okay, well, if I do this and this, and then I started locking the rotation of the washer because I realized the washer is not there to rotate. It doesn't need to rotate at all. So I started putting a notch that locked it into the pivot area of the folder itself so that the washer now no longer rotates. And it's only the blade that rotates, which also means you can do things like add little pockets for oil and, or grease, which is why if you look at the photo I posted, there's holes in the washers because you can. I don't know who did it first. I'm sure I was influenced by somebody cause I rarely come up with ideas on my own, I'm not that smart, but, uh, I know nowadays it's pretty common where Chris Reeves Knives uses them on the Insingo. I believe his first model that they did it on was the Omnoms And I don't know whether I did it first or he did it first. I don't know that it counts matters cause I'm sure either one of us came up with it. We probably both saw it from somebody like Alan Alishowitz, who as knife makers, you know came up with all the ideas. 20
2: years ago.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. That's really cool. I, I had never owned a washer knife until that Spyderco that I was carrying last week when we were talking. Sure, and I because I was always like, "Oh man, you know, bearings all the way, and that way it flips easy." Blah blah blah. And I've I've been very impressed by how smooth a washer knife can be. Oh, absolutely. I, like like most things, as
1: it all comes down to tolerancing. If you get that blade thickness plus the washer thickness at the exact same thickness as the backspacer, you can get an extremely smooth action out of anything, but particularly washers. And it's just a different kind of action. Ball bearings have a very specific feel. On a lot of knives, you can even feel the balls rolling. You can kind of feel them grinding in a weird way, which I don't like, but there's ways to mitigate that. But sometimes it still happens. But uh, washers, you have to be Everything has to be perfect in order to get a really, really smooth action. It is hard to make a washer knife smooth with poor tolerances, but with excellent tolerancing, it's super, super smooth. Bow bearings, however, have the drawback of, or the benefit, they're very forgiving. You can, right, you can have weaker tolerances and
0: sloppier tolerances and still get away with having an extremely smooth knife. Well, I imagine that's why we see 15, $20 knives out of China that are adequate, you know, absolutely. But that wasn't true even 10 years ago, I think it was about eight years ago.
1: The market started changing and ball bearings really started hitting the market. I, I believe it was the IKBS system. That was the first commercially available system for washers. But any of you have ever taken apart an IKBS knife, it's just loose ball bearings. Yeah, do it on a bias, and and I don't mean (laughs) loose ball bearings. Loose balls, the the actual bearing balls, not the. Yeah, I I remember the first time I took one apart, and it was a custom knife being loaned to me by a friend just to study as I took apart. Oh. And I lost I lost half the ball bearings. I had to be like, (laughs) "Uh, hey, I'm gonna have to hold on to this another week because I just had to order a bunch of ball bearings in a size I did not have, because the particular maker of this knife, European. And he used a metric ball bearing size that I did not stop.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I was just like, oh,
1: okay. Well, live and learn.
0: Yeah. So that's, that's rough. So speaking of Chinese knives, one of the questions we had from obsidian tools was considering the many high quality production knives coming from China, how do you think the custom knife market will change in the future? Is it a general push for higher quality in the industry? Trying to remember how I answered this when we weren't recording last week. Um, I think you had said something about we're 10 years too late for that or like five years too late for that or something like that. Uh, That's true. We are 10 years too late for that
1: to to make a push, to make a push towards higher quality. I definitely think a push towards higher quality is is necessary. It's going to need to happen and it's already happening, particularly as the knife market is getting more comfortable. I mean, I I think I alluded to last week and, and I'm sure for those of you listening, that was like, Eight minutes ago but (laughs) but uh i I alluded to the fact that there was a long time where i was solely handmade it was very against cc's and that is definitely a trend that has followed the knife industry hard because there is an entire subset of collectors that just want handmade products which i completely respect and completely understand there there is a there are some amazing artists out there that can do stuff with their hands that it, it just boggles my mind what they do—be manual machining or entirely just handwork. Before we started recording, we were talking about the musical instruments that are sitting behind us. the The, the guitar that is just above me—that the, the one that does function—was made by a guy in Tasmania. He builds it entirely with hand tools, not just wow, not just yeah, not not just manually, entirely hand tools. So there's videos of him on Instagram hand sawing the wood, and I'm just I. I it's mind-boggling what he is capable of doing
0: in a completely exhausting way but yeah there's something very romantic about that like uh, you know harkening back to old times and then all ab- that absolutely there, it's, there's a there's a beautiful artistry to it
1: i was very much in that category a long time ago i say a long time ago this eight or nine years ago i was very much in that category before i kind of turned a shift in my mental thinking of I can't make a living doing this way. To get back to the question, which I very much steered off course there, (laughs) the market has over the last decade, become much more comfortable with CNC made products and particularly with custom knife makers, utilizing CNC's. Now there is a blurring right now of what people call custom knives versus what other people would just call boutique manufacturing, small scale manufacturing. So that, that is a. That is a line that is blurred a lot and in terms that are used a lot that are incorrect, I think. But so what do you see as the difference there? I think that's going to be individual to every single person. I know knife makers that are calling their work completely custom that are made identically, identically to the way Benchmade makes their knives. Okay. And they're calling them custom because they're only making 20 of them a month instead of 20 of them an hour. Right. And so there, there's a significant it, 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 there's a significant amount of, of it that is
0: just defined by the, the maker and is defined by the market nowadays. So for you, like what de- designates your customs versus your performance line? I guess. For me, the performance series knives are almost entirely CNC machined. Very
1: little, it, generally it is just finishing and aesthetic steps that are done, uh, aesthetic finishing steps that are done by hand. And even that it's minimal, but on my custom knives, I'm hand grinding the blades while I still might be using a lot of CNC machining, they're still getting, everything's being hand fit, hand finished, uh, hand ground. There's a lot of hand work that goes in. Whereas, you know, anybody that's used a round over bit, sorry. It's a woodworking term, corner rounding mill, knows that there's still a transition. You can get that thing set up perfectly. And there's almost always still a minuscule transition. That's something where I don't have that problem on a custom because I can go back and hand, hand finesse that, that transition to where it's completely smooth and invisible and just seems like one, Mm -hmm. like there wasn't an end mill that
0: just was there and I'll take off all the chatter marks and anything like that. I can't remember if it was in the first part or the second part last week. But I told you, like, I couldn't believe your level of finishing, like that, how picky your customers can be, or or I guess just how attentive to detail they are. Like I, I, there was that pivot that you showed Brad and I, when we came by that I thought was freaking perfect. And you're like, oh, I got to remake that. There's a, a small line of glue. I was like, what? Oh yeah. And I mean, I should clarify, while my customers are picky.
1: It is entirely my fault that they are picky because <laughs> I am just, I am just as picky as they are for the most part. Right. Um, I have rarely met a customer who is more picky than me. It is just however frustrating sometimes when I get to the point where I'm like, okay, this, this is 99.9% as perfect as I can do, but I cannot do that extra point, or, you know, 0.9% or whatever right. 0.1% without without potentially damaging it to the point that it's not worth doing. You know, sometimes that extra step is dangerous where you've got something almost entirely done. And then you're like, but if I touch it, I could destroy it in one instant. Yeah. And so I, I call it there. I have to say, I, I am not capable of doing better at this point and still putting food on my table right? because I am likely to screw it up. So well, that's the human point one percent
0: that they're paying for. I hope for. I, right. you know, I hope
1: so. But so sometimes I have to say, okay, I have to put this down. I, I can't I can't keep messing with this to try to perfect this. So I do, and then occasionally my customers are like, "Hey, I'm sending this back to you because I want you to finish that extra point one <laughs> And I'm like, but, <laughs> "But you
0: couldn't have even seen that unless you looked at it with a microscope." Yep. Well, well, I well, look like, at it with a microscope. Exactly. Well, And what's funny, so <laughs> since last, since we talked last week, uh, I've been watching a bunch of Josh Hacko's live streams, and I think oh, yeah. YouTube was like, oh, you can you can start watching watch videos now. And one that came up was two guys that I, I, I don't think it was a Keyence, but they had some 500 power microscope and were just taking Grand Seikos and Rolexes and putting them under this microscope that could also do uh, 3D topology scans and stuff and just breaking down the most minuscule details. And they're like, oh, I'm not sure if I like that from a, you know, $100,000 watch. And I'm like, you couldn't see that at a hundred by, you had to go down to 500 by and scan it to find this thing. What are you talking about? Right, right. And
1: most of my customers are not that way, but like, I do look at them that way. I want to know every flaw, every single, I guarantee I know more about the flaws on my knives than any of my customers do, because I have never made a perfect knife. I just always strive to make the knife I made yesterday. Sorry, messing up my little I always strive to make the knife I'm making today better than the one I made yesterday, because every time I make something, I learn something from it. I learn a new step or I get stronger at doing that operation. You know, a lot of people are like, well, how do you grind knives? And I'm like, well, grind a thousand of them. All of a sudden, you get a lot better. You get better every time you grind a knife. That's you know, uh, John Grimson was a perfect example of that. Of oh, Eric does all of the sharpening for them, mm-hmm. because Eric Eric has now sharpened. I I don't know how many knives right there, uh, John Gribson was made, but it's got to be in the many thousands at this point. Yeah, so, he's put his ten
0: thousand hours in,
1: but yeah, so he's he's perfected how to knife sharpen. He's, he's gotten really, really good at it. And goes another example of that. I don't know how many guys they have now, but at one point they had, you know, factory and staff of over a hundred people. Three guys did all of the knife sharpening. Three of them sharpened every single knife that ever came out of that factory because they had basically scrapped so many blades they now knew how to do it. Great, right. And, but, you know, I've ground enough knives and now I know
0: how to grind, but I still mess up all the time. And you can tell that by looking at my scrap bin. So speaking of grinding, I want to make sure that the, your challenge is still in the episode from last week. Oh in God, you, I do remember
2: what
1: <laughs> I because I, I really want to do it. I guess this challenge is to John Grimsmill, but John Grimsmill, buddy, when I come to Canada, we're going to do a challenge. I'm going to hand grind a custom or a knife blade in the same time it takes you to machine grind a blade. To the same finish level. So that's the challenge is to, is to hand grind a blade in the same amount of time it takes you to machine grind a blade to the same finish level. I can't wait. And I'm, that has better be a video. I'm pretty certain I can do it. I, as I sit here now a week later, having thought through that <laughs> um, <laughs> statement of bravado,
0: I have doubts, but, uh, I still think I can I still, I mean, this is the modern John Henry, like this is man versus machine. I'm, I'm ready to see this video. You definitely oh, have to do it. Here's the clear different, significant difference though.
1: John's will do it identically right every single time all day long and it will not complain. I could probably do two. And then I'm like, I'm done for the day <laughs> I'm done. I'm done on the grind day. Cause sometimes particularly those roughing steps in hand grain. Actually every step at hand grinding a blade is, is pretty hard on the hands
0: and arms. It can get pretty tiring after a couple of hours of doing that. So. Makes sense. It's like so, four your are dead. I bet. Speaking of grinding and fixturing blades, design the everything asked. He wanted me to ask you about fixturing blades and grinding machining bevels. Also, what are the keys to the, de- uh, the keys to designing a knife that is comfortable in the hand? Sure. I think I did this last week too. I'm still going to go into the designing
1: a knife that's comfortable for the hand. Although I may change my answer slightly from what I said, I think the key things for, uh, again, for, for designing a comfortable knife to, for the hand is to, to start by figuring out which hand you're working with. Take top tier customer, figure out how big their hand is. You know, it, it is, it is very easy to make a knife that fits your own hand. Cause you have a hand model right there of exactly what your hand shape is. But your hand is not going to be the same size as their hand. And so oftentimes when it comes to figure out where those finger grooves need to be, where the the grip needs to rest, finding out if you have high points or sharp points is get it in the hand of your customer. And if you don't have that, find a friend that might have similar size hands. You know, my wife has significantly smaller hands than I do. And I can, if if I can make a knife that is both comfortable for me and comfortable for my wife, I know I've got a pretty good proportion of the the world that it's now comfortable and usable for, but, uh, also 3d printing stuff, draw, you know, make up a tiny little 3d model of it and 3d print it, see how it feels or cut it out of wood or plastic or whatever. You know, you can go get sheets of cheap plastic from your big box store. That's eighth inch thick or three sixteenths thick, I think is also commonly available, cut out a mock-up of your knife and see how it feels and then Take it to your grinder or Dremel tool or files or whatever it is you're using to shape the handles and start shaping it until it gets better. Change, change what you need to change. I think that's, you know, you can, you can study all these design rules for ergonomics, but there's no, um, substitute for actually putting it in the hands of the user and then as far as machine grinding bevels is a very difficult thing I'd have I, the, the, the way I currently grind pebbles is I, uh, in my, for my production work is in my CNC machine, which I know all of the CNC machinists that are listening to this, which let's be real, that that's only who listens to this.
2: Um. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. I grind blades in my machine. I, I do put abrasive materials inside of my machine, but, uh, it's worth it to me. Then I accept the consequences of. I have to replace the ways it rails more often, but that's okay. I hold my blades horizontally and at a slight angle and then grind them with a gigantic abrasive wheel, in my case, CBN, although you could use a lot of different abrasives, depending on the steel you're grinding.
0: Yeah. It's a, a frightening size tool. Like I, I think it's, it, it's funny. Cause when I first saw your machine, I was like, man, it's too bad that you got, you have the umbrella. But like, I, um, I I think about throwing that tool through a double arm tool changer, and I'm like, you know, an umbrella sounds really really nice for that tool. <laughs> I, I still have to clear out the
1: tools on either side of it every time I use it. Yeah, uh, one of the more frustrating parts because for the most part I never have to change tools in my machines. I have I have very much gotten a standard set of tools, and and that encompasses all of the twenty pockets of my 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 Haas machine. But I have to clear out two of them or three of them every time I want to do grinding operations, because it hits the other things next to it.
0: So yeah, it's um, giant.
1: So yeah, I hold the blades horizontally and tip it at a slight angle that corresponds to the angle of the bevel I'm grinding and then do some, a lot of CAD work and a lot of uh, simulation work to create three dimensional sketches to create the toolpath and and do the grinding exactly the way I work. And then I spent a lot of time also, one of the key things I had to spend a lot of time doing grinding, as you might imagine, creates a lot of heat. I had to spend a lot of time creating a coolant system. So I actually have a separate sub coolant system that I've, whenever I'm, whenever I'm grinding blades, I also add this extra cooler pump that is pumping coolant directly at where the grinding head is. To basically double the amount of what's spilling off the blade so that I don't burn blades. I didn't necessarily need that, but I was getting, I was pushing that line of having a problem. And I just figured it's easier to just, let's get all the coolant, get all the abrasive out of there. And then if you're stupid enough to do any of this, please filter your coolant. Uh, like if you have a filtering system, double it because it's not enough. I spend a lot of time cleaning my two cords and filtering it so that I do not put that
0: back into the machine. How low of a micro filter are you using? It's
1: a good question. I don't even remember. I've been using the same system for so many years now. I have no recollection of what it is. <laughs> it's working though. So that's it's good. It's working. I mean, it it's, I've got pre filters and I've, I've got like four filter systems back in back, back to back into each other. And for the most part, I only ever have to change the filters on the first two, because those are the only ones that get dirty. The last ones are just kind of there as a, just in case. Right. I wish I knew the answer to that. I have no idea what microbes I'm using here. I can't remember.
2: It's okay. I think that
1: answered that question. Yeah. That's a complex question to describe, describe the grinding in a CNC machine.
0: Well, and and what's so cool, like I remember the first time I saw your setup, is it's completely backwards from how Grizmo shows on his videos, how he does his. Oh, absolutely. Which is, it's really, really cool to see two knife makers tackle the same issue and come up with drastically different uh, ideas. Absolutely. There were there were some problems with the way he was
1: grinding. Uh, problems. Some, I can't think of the word I'm looking for downsides i get yeah i have downsides to the way he was doing it that i wasn't willing to compromise on that i didn't want to to dig into one of them being that the diameter of his wheel was you know the the smallest diameter of his wheel was the was was now automatically the plunge diameter of whatever the plunge line of his grinds were so at the back of his blades right where it where the where the bevel fades out into the the flats of the blade, he could only go so small. And I always wanted smaller than that. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get around how to fix that. And I didn't want to compromise on that. So it was just like, well, I don't want to, if I want a smaller radius there, I have to find a different way to grind, which means take, throw away everything I learned from John and watched (laughs) him experience.
0: But So was he first to try that or were you guys developing Simultaneously, or how did that work? He was definitely the first to try it that way. There
1: is another, the method I, the method I am using, I, I started thinking through it in my head and had drawings drawn up and had simulations done. And then talking, this is one of the great benefits of knife shows. I was talking with another maker, say I was talking with the owners of a, I'm not going to mention their names, but one of the larger really high end production facilities here in the United States. I was talking to the owner of that and just said, how, how do you grind blades? I know you don't have a blade grinder because I've seen your shop tours and there's this one section of your shop you keep very hidden. Is this how you're grinding your blades? And I just directly asked him, is this how you're grinding your blades? And he basically said,
2: yep.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, okay, cool. I know this works. I know this can works because this other shop that I, that is very well respected in the industry has been doing it the exact same way for a decade longer than I've been even making knives. So they, they, they'd proven out this process, but had been keeping it so secretive that nobody really knew they were doing it. And I guess that's still true. There's, I know there's going to be a dozen knife makers that are listening to this, be like, I know who you're talking about, but, uh, They've kept it secret. Keep it secret for them. They don't want to share. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Or go ask that guy directly and then he'll tell you.
0: Right. There you go. So stepping back to the thirty thousand foot view, uh DFM Toolworks asked, Where do you get the inspiration for your knives? Well I answered this one last week too, and I'm pretty much gonna be the same. I get inspiration
1: everywhere. I don't I don't look for specific inspiration from anything anymore. Because I found that if I looked at the knife industry in particular, I would just end up making knives that looked like other people's knives. And I didn't want to do that. Uh, there's no originality in that it's boring. It's iterative. And that wasn't what I was striving to do. Not that I was ever striving to make something different. I just wanted to make something that was me, not me
0: influenced by someone else. Right. So yeah. I mean, it's one thing if you come across the same idea as somebody else independently. But if you like made a whole knife and then we're like, oh, I guess this does look like that knife that I saw six months ago. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I love watches. So I look at a lot at watches. I look a lot at,
1: I mean, cars are another one, motorcycles. There's some incredible industrial designers working in those industries. And it's fun to see what they are influenced by. That's as, as I talked about in kind of my upbringing and story, uh, woodworking. I love looking at what working is doing. They have a lot of really talented, talented artists and it's fun to see what woodworkers are doing. So, and then I also just look for patterns in nature because the world is full of super cool patterns and super cool textures that can, you can, you can see that pattern, see that shape and apply it to your design in some way. So I. I don't have a specific place. I'm looking for inspiration. I just, I just look at, I just look at the world. And if I see something that's like, huh, that's really cool. Or if I see something, it even makes me pause that I'm like, I don't like that, but it makes me pause and continue to look at it. I typically pull out my phone and snap a picture. Um, which I know my wife laughs at me a lot because we'll just be like randomly on a walk somewhere or walking through Costco or somewhere and I'll just be like, (laughs) and snap a quick photo. And so, I mean, you can look at my phone and look back through my photos. It just randoms, random stuff, but I'm just taking a picture of, Hey, this is a cool finish. Or I like this transition between these two materials and that might have sparked an idea that sparked another idea that led me on a path that got me to something interesting. So inspirations everywhere. That's awesome. Don't look for it. You'll just find it. If you're paying attention to not don't pay attention to inspiration, but you'll find it.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and I like the, the idea of not looking for inspiration in others works in your same field. Like, yeah. Cause it can't like, I even, I forget what podcast I was listening to, but it was two comics and they were describing the same phenomenon. They were like, oh, when I was starting out, you know, like looking back on it. Now I was parroting X comic because I was, you know, they were the big comic of the day and I feel like that's just like pervasive in every industry and in every any kind of creative work is you, you like someone so much that you end up parroting their work and then realizing it only in retrospect. Oh, absolutely. I'm,
1: I mean, I'm a, I'm a guitarist and, and I play guitar with my church mostly, uh, these days, but like I played guitar in other place for a, I no one has ever called me out on this, but I recognize it myself of whoever I'm listening to and being like. whatever the album I have been listening to most lately will show up in what I play. So like if, you know, like I'm a guitarist, so if I've been listening to a ton of John Mayer, all of a sudden you're going to start hearing John Mayer guitar lines in my, in my playing. Not intentionally, it's entirely subconscious, but you know, if I'm listening to to Queen, all of a sudden you're going to hear Brian May guitar lines in my songs. Right? Um, It's just, it happens. People, People subconsciously are influenced by everything. So I, in a very real way, actively ignore the knife industry, which is both problematic and, and a good thing, because it's a bad idea to ignore the industry that you work in. <laughs> um,
0: but, well, but I mean, people still are buying your knives. They, they still wrote them. So clearly you're not so far out of touch with your industry that it's hurting you. True. Although I definitely think it
1: has hurt me, particularly in the last two years where I have even taken a larger step back, but, uh, it has not put me out of business, but I can definitely say it has hurt me mostly from people telling me it's a problem.
0: Oh, Oh, man, but that's okay. So, well, before we jump into shop news, new things, all that stuff, uh, I wanted to take a a quick 3d printer break because last week we didn't get to talk about those and for anybody listening we had talked about doing a full 3d printer episode or mostly 3d printing episode, which I still want to do, but I do kind of want to go into what 3d printers you have, you know, your little side business and making some tables or, um, or, uh, print surfaces, all that stuff. Cause it's sure it's super cool. Well, yeah. So, I mean, directly behind me is, is
1: my Prusa, which I really can't call a Prusa anymore because there's almost no original part on it left. It is no, uh, anyone in the 3d printing world that has gotten deep down the hole of, of Prusa's has seen the bear mod, which is you replace the whole frame with T-frame aluminum extrusion. I've done a lot of other mods to, it aside from that. So I have, I have a lot of modifications into my Prusa, but, uh, so it's very much not a Prusa anymore. And I kind of got down that rabbit hole of modifying my Prusa and then was still unhappy with some aspects of it, mainly that I couldn't couldn't print ABS. I really wanted to do some parts in ABS because PLA is great. PETG is a great plastic, but they weren't doing some certain things I wanted that I needed ABS to do, which led me to researching various printers. And I found Voron. And so I made, of course I'm stupid enough, stubborn enough, but also ambitious enough that the first time I saw Voron, I was like, this is cool. How can I make it my own and make it better? In my naivete of not realizing I should probably, probably not modify and mess with somebody's design, who they spent many years perfecting. So I made myself, so I have a boron V0, which is not a V0. It is much larger than your average V0. So I think the average V0 is 120 millimeter by 120, millimeter X and Y. Mine is 180 or 190 millimeters by 190 millimeters. So basically what I did was I took the Voron V0 and said, I want it to print the exact same diet, the exact same print area as a Prussia or Prusa Mini. Because on 120 millimeters I couldn't fit a knife handle. And since that's one of the primary things I do, I wanted to be able to fit a knife handle, so I needed to make it big enough that I could fit the majority of my knives. Um, and while that printer, that printer was a lot of fun to build and I love that printer. And I was like, well, let's make another one. So I built another Prusa or another Voron, and now I'm building a third. But of course, being the machinist that I am, I am along the way was like, Hey, nobody is making the-. There's this one key part on particularly the, or on all borons, but on a lot of 3D printers of the alumina print surface that is utilized on a lot of these machines. You know, a lot of the machines that are consumer level, like the Prusas, like the Enders. They use a PCB heated bed, whereas Forons will use a cast aluminum plate of some kind, and then you apply a silicone heat bed underneath that and that heats the whole plate, but because it's chunk of cast aluminum, it is generally much more stable, much flatter and heats more evenly. So I just realized nobody was offering these things commercially. And so it started up just like. Well, I've got to buy this piece of aluminum to make my own, but the piece of aluminum I have to make, have to buy is enough to make five beds. So I might as well make myself one and then sell the other four. So I did, and they sold almost instantly. I mean, it it took like five minutes to sell the other four. Cause of course I put my finishing touches on them that are same kind of thing I would do on knife making. So did engraving and chamfered the edges, did little
0: that I guess nobody else was doing. Somebody even went back on my picture, of the one you made for me like two days ago and was like, Man, that in- end engraving is so cool. And I was like, Yeah, it is. So I bought one. Like, I wasn't going to make my own. And you've got more Z than I do too. So, and I used every bit of it to make. Let's see, you bought the
1: 300 millimeter, I think. Yeah. 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 Cause you steered me away from the 350. And I still would. It's too big. The three hundred and fifty millimeter, which is what, like fourteen inches, yeah, uses every bit of my like my my entire Z length is sixteen inches, I think, on my machine. So I have almost no room for the actual tool. So I have to use the shortest ER collet holders I can, and choke up on the end mills or drills as much as humanly possible just to make these things. But yeah, I just started selling them and then I was like, oh, I'll stick them on my Etsy for 490, 490 manufacturing, where I sell all my other stuff. And they very, very quickly, just, I, I don't even know how many I've made now. It's in the hundreds of these, particularly for the B zero. Um, they've done very well, but it's also a really cool printer. So like, I can't, it's not my design. I, I made some modifications to the bed that kind of my own touches and came up with a couple of my own ideas for the way the end stops work and. That's fun and all, but yeah,
0: mostly came up with a cool printer. So yeah. And you, uh, you gave me the the disease as well. And so now I'm, I'm, I'm sitting on top of a pile of Voron parts waiting for me to have time to do the rest. Well, you know, um,
1: anyone else that wants to make a Voron, you can blame me. Uh, do
0: not give your wife my phone number though. Thank you. (laughs) Uh. Yeah. If you heard it on this podcast, it's all Brad's fault. So, uh, yeah. Well, I, I got Josh Rimsma
1: went to them too. He, 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 he more intelligently than you and me decided to not build one and just bought a second person, which much better for him. Now I, I just love 3D printers. They're so much fun. I can't count the number of toys I have made for my son on them that he's just loves. And it's even more fun we, I mean, in the, in the ego stroking sense, of oh, when when friends come over and see him playing with these little toys, I'm like, where did you get that in? And he's like, my daddy made it. <laughs> like, <"Yes>, that's awesome. <laughs> but, uh, it's, I, I mean, you, you know, it's true in your shop too, cause I've seen them everywhere. But when you start making yourself little fixtures and tool holders and little customized things that just make your life better in your shop, lane improvements, utilizing a 3d printer, it's like, well, yeah, I made this tiny little thing that's, you know, Four dollars worth of plastic or less, but but it saves this thing from getting dirt on it or it protects this investment or allows me to put this specific tool in the exact place I wanted to right by my machine without risking it falling on the ground when I accidentally sweep my hand across the desk. That's a good thing it's and it's
0: yeah that's having awesome. having mature really cool. shop and not having a 3D printer, I don't know how I don't know how machine shops do that. Well, and once you get like a, a, a reliable 3d printer that you can just hit print and walk away and not worry about it, there's something, it, it's like the machinist dream. You're like, man, I wish, I wish that all my customers were right. And I could just go up to my machine and hit the green button and oh, load a 3d model and I would come, come out with a part. And like, so it, it kind of fulfills that dream. I mean, it still takes some issue, you know, troubleshooting, figuring out orientation and all that, but like, for the most part. It very much feels like that dream of just hitting print and walk away. Well, and that's, I mean,
1: when I, that's what I'd hoped to make my Prusa do. And it is very, very close. I very rarely have to touch that machine, but I can say my Vorons are there. I don't have to touch them anymore. And I even have processes built into them. And that's, I guess, one of the cool things about the Vorons is, and even Prusa does this, but not in the same way Vorons do of probing the bed surface and figuring out all the dimensions dimensional accuracies for you because they have probing routines built into the things, which are awesome. You really can just set it and forget it. Yeah. And that's awesome. I, I yeah. count the number of times I have started those machines with some, with like an engineering grade plastics using ABS or something, which are generally notoriously difficult to do outside of a heated chamber. And I should clarify, borons do not have a heated chamber. They have a chamber, but it is not heated. It is only heated by the ambient heat that comes off the heated bed. But, uh, when I can start a print and walk away and come back 16 hours later, edit, then I look at a finished print that it's done perfectly. That was awesome.
0: It's yeah. great. I, oh, and they're so stinking fast. Like I, I still watch videos and I'm like, that's amazing. For sure. I mean.
1: Like most things, there's a point where you start going too fast and you start losing print quality. Um, yeah, I mean, that's true in machining too. It's like, oh yeah, I can run this end mill at 200 inches per minute,
0: but shouldn't always, depending on what you're trying to do. Yeah. Well, like Tom Salander made a 2.4 recently. Yep. The video, and he was saying the accelerations and stuff, and it's the same as the speedio, like one G of acceleration in X and Y. I was like, oh, I know those numbers. Like, yeah, I rec- recognize that. <laughs> That's, I I will say that,
1: that like, I I don't know that the, uh, my Vorons physically print all that much faster than my Persa does, but the acceleration rates are bonkers comparatively. My, my Persa cannot on its best day accelerate at even a quarter of the speed the Vorons can. Right. So, and, and over time, over, you know, over. 40 minute print, that's not that big of a difference. That acceleration time only adds up to be a couple of minutes, but when you start doing a print that takes 24 hours, we're talking hours of print time is saved because it can accelerate just a little faster or a lot faster. Yeah, actually it's funny. Like that was, I think it was, I think it was CNC kitchen did a video on the V zero (laughs) or V zero and he didn't use my bed. Like he didn't, he, he bought a kit, I believe as well. He bought a kit out of China, I believe, um, and it had flaws and problems, but there was one weekend where I sold like 20 printer beds in one weekend and I could not figure out why. And then I hopped on YouTube on Monday and I was like, oh, oh, there's, there's that video Yeah, there's Stefan from CNC kitchen doing, doing a video on the, on the B zero, got it. Okay. I need to send that guy a bed. (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah it was there was i sold a lot a couple of days after after his videos came out
0: i bet but well very cool uh yeah we'll definitely have to do a full episode kind of diving into it because i've learned a ton from you like i was struggling pretty heavily when we first started talking with my ender and i have significantly less struggles and and kind of you gave me some pointers on where to troubleshoot and all that. And it's, it's been a big help. It, it has been actually super reliable until I just switched roles of filament. And then now it's, I'm, I'm having to troubleshoot again. So I'm sure I get this role working. And then
1: That is know. one, one, one thing I do once, once you get your, your system working well, once you get the actual parameters working well, the machine itself working well, pick one brand element. And even if it costs more, just go with that brand all the time. Yeah, it really does make a difference. Um, then cuz every brand, I mean, if you just go and buy whatever's cheapest on Amazon, you never quite know what you're gonna get. And sometimes those, sometimes they're fine and you could pick only one brand from Amazon, but, uh, yeah, it's like, just pick one brand. I can't think of any brands off the top of my head at the moment, but, uh,
0: yeah. Well, th- this was going from one Amazon Basics role to another, but I don't know the uh, age or condition of the second role. And so I think that that had probably has something to do with it. That can make a difference. Absolutely. I have
1: not had good luck with Amazon Basics filaments. I mean, I should say I've had good luck within a single role, but I've never had a good luck from one role to the next with Amazon Basics filament. I've always had problems switching rolls with them. I pretty much, these days, I pretty much buy all of my plastic from Teen Valley Plastics, KVP, uh, of any, cause it's just the one I work with. Their plastic's good and it comes quick. Eh? And you picked one and you stuck with it. Yeah. Um, I'll <laughs> When I picked until i find a different one that I pick. but, uh, right, but yeah, then you start getting, I mean, it get, life gets even more complicated when you buy carbon fiber, reinforced things, fiberglass, yada, yada life gets right. really complicated when you start adding getting additives in the plastic that add strength but uh,
0: though i can't remember i think you had said it last week when we were talking and then aaron had also said it everybody i've talked to says that carbon fiber specifically reinforced stuff and prints pretty dang well or at least right. better than the non-alloyed plastics
1: I, I i definitely remember aaron saying that i'm not sure i entirely agreed with him on that I will say this, the carbon fiber reinforced plastics always look better because of the dull finish they give when they print, they look really clean. And so sometimes the plastics look better, but they may not necessarily have printed better. They, I, I have often experienced with the carbon fiber. It's like, this looks great, but it didn't bond. The, the layers didn't adhere correctly. And so the layers will separate after a little bit of force is put on them, but overall Yes, I would say that that's probably a true statement that they, they print better, but you do have to fine tune your settings for that particular material. And then nylon, no matter what you're doing, is always painted the butt to print, 'cause because it has to be as dry as the Sahara. Right. In order to print correctly. And if it's even remotely not dry, it doesn't matter whether it doesn't matter whether carbon fiber is in there or not, it's still gonna print terribly. <laughs>
0: Yeah, which usually isn't a terrible problem for us, but it, with all the rain we've been getting. Oh God. It's I, my shot, like humid. 40% humidity right now, Yeah, which I
1: realized for some of the country it's like 40%, that's a dry day, but uh,
2: <laughs> for us,
0: Arizonans, that's so unpleasant. Yeah. At, at the beginning of the summer, I was chatting with somebody on Instagram and he was like, yeah, I see that you guys are at 3% today. And I'm like, yeah, sounds about right. Like, yeah, that's normal, yep. you know, 10% or lower. it's it's definitely true I mean I guess that's one sense
1: of well you you wouldn't know anymore since you have air conditioning in your shop which can be heard through Mm. the whole half first half (laughs) (laughs) just know your discomfort in listening was our comfort in sitting (laughs) 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 Uh, you know that helps cut down the humidity but like when it's super dry in the desert and you're sitting in your shop with your swamp cooler, the humidity's kind of nice that it adds sometimes, sometimes it's dry enough that you're like,
2: I kind of like
0: that little bit of extra humidity that my, oh cooler yeah. Cooler is adding. Well, at the beginning of the summer, our swamp cooler is working so well that we didn't think we were going to have to get AC this year. Like yeah. it, it was keeping the shop 75 or lower. Like there were just nights that I had to turn it off because I was cold. Sure. I I'm still, de- I keep going back and forth in my new
1: shop which I guess would go into shop news, which we haven't done yet, but, uh, in my new shop, which has a swamp cooler that, that it is the most oversized swamp cooler I've ever seen for this size shop. It, it is built for a unit that is three times the size of what this, this little garage is. And oh, wow. And I'm like, I, it doesn't matter where I'm standing. I can feel the air moving. So I may not need to add an air air conditioner, even though I probably will. But I don't know if I need it because this thing is just so oversized. Like
0: I could cool my house with this thing. Then she only had 800 square foot shop and I could cool my house. <laughs> so, so yeah, let's go into new, new shop news, new things. What's going on. You mentioned yeah, your new shop. I, 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 I'm moving my shop, which really just means I'm moving my
1: shop home. I am, I am downsizing my business a fair fair in, in physical real estate and in equipment. So, uh any of you are looking for manual machining equipment or knife makers, you're looking for things. Give me a call. I have a couple of weird machines that I'll be glad to sell you or make you a good deal because yeah, I, I, because I've mostly switched to utilizing CNC machines, um, I have a lot of manual equipment I collected over the years that I just don't need anymore. So yeah, I mean, I don't
0: use your turret drill press all the time. I don't, don't (laughs) get me wrong. Anyone who has a
1: Bergmaster drilling drill press. They're basically the coolest drill presses ever. It's probably one of the most fascinating mechanical designs I have ever seen, which is why I have three of them. <laughs> because they're incredible. Yeah. I do not remember the last time I actually drilled a
0: hold with any of them, though. Like, oh right. Well, they're super cool. They give me that same kind of geek out feeling as like watching an old cam driven Swiss lathe. Oh, that's. Absolutely. That's, I mean, that's exactly the same level
1: of ridiculous engineering going inside. I mean, the inside is legitimately cams, levers and gears. That's partly why I have three of them is, I I mean, I bought one and then I found another guy who I, I wanted parts to repair the one in case it ever broke because parts I couldn't find. And I found a guy locally that had two of them and he's like, you could buy it, but you have to buy both of them. So I did. And he also had a box of parts, but when I bought them, when I bought those two, only one of those two functioned. So I had a third one that didn't function. Then I'm like, sweet. That means I can tear into it to learn. And I've since taken them all apart and rebuilt them completely. But, uh, they're fascinating pieces of equipment inside. So anyways, I digress from shop news. Uh, so yeah, I, uh, bought a new house and am moving my shop to my house. So I have a, my new house has a four car garage. I should say it has two, two car garages that I'm moving my shop into. So one side will be the CNC machining area. And the other side will be kind of the abrasive makes a lot of mess dirt area. That's kind of slow process. Cause I've in the middle so I'm, I'm currently in the middle of getting it ready and getting the funds together to get the power managed and done and wired up the way I need and adding, I think 400 amps is what we're going to go with. It's adding 400 amps um, to those two. Shows. Nice. That'd be great. It's gonna be awesome. And I'm just super excited to have my shop at home again. I was super excited the day I moved my shop originally away from my house to separate my work and life from each other. And now I am very excited to bring them back together in a healthier sense. Having kids changes things a lot. So it's hard being, it's hard being a business owner and right? being like, I worked 90 hours this week. Correct when you have kids, so. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I feel like every person I've talked to that has a a family, you know, a wife and kids or whatever, I think everybody goes through that arc of like, oh, I really want to, I want my work and home life separate. And then they're like, no, but it'd be really nice to like, I'm, I'm running a 90 minute cycle, I might as well go in and make some lunch and hang out with the kid and then come back out. Sure. Oh yeah. And so I'm, I'm
1: stoked for it. Like, I, I am very,
0: very excited to move my shop back
1: home. I mean, it does obviously limit growth, but I've also come to a point in my business where I've realized I don't want growth in that sense. I want to get more done in the same amount of time I have, but I don't, I don't want to have a shop of 15 people working for me and producing thousands of knives a month or right, hundreds of knives a month. That's not something I want anymore. There was a time where that's what I wanted, but I've realized, and that's, that's not what I want to do with my business. Um, not what I want to do with my life. So Um, downsizing the shop and taking it back home and focusing more on
0: what I do is something I'm pretty excited for. Awesome. That's super cool. And then you said, I think last week that you're going to start up doing some more performance series knives again. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I have, I have another model in the works that's,
1: that's nearly ready to produce as well as I need to start making the ones I haven't made in uh, a year. Cause I, I don't think I have produced a single performance series product through all of 2020. Um, so excited to bring those ones back because it's been a while that people are continually asking me to bring them and make them <laughs> so probably should do that.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I imagine there's a, a nice transition where you, you know, you get sick of doing all custom work and stuff. And then you're like, oh, I can do a production run. And then you'd are like, okay, I'm, I'm sick of this. Let's hand, hand grind some blades. Absolutely.
1: Uh, well, and there's, there's also the thing part of, part of you that listens to what your customers are saying. And there was definitely a period where customers were like, are you even making custom knives anymore? And I was, you know, you take that personally, even though you shouldn't, but you do unintentionally. And I, and mm-hmm. a customer said that to me and it, it hit me hard when he said it for some reason. And I was like, oh, man, I yes, I am still a custom knife maker. But I, cause it had been six months since I'd made a single custom product at that point. And yeah, you go through that identity of like, wait, am I a production knife maker, small scale production maker, doing my performance series, or am I a custom knife maker You're deciding who you are and what your business is? Cause it's two very different businesses. It's two very oh, yeah. different. It's two very different ways of making a product, even though they're the same product, so, uh trying to figure out what I want to do. There's still something I'm deciding, but, uh what other shop news I think that pretty much covers my that's that's what's going on big what big news wise at the moment so
0: what about you cool. I was like I'm, I'm gonna ask you again what happened <laughs> so uh, yeah I was gonna say but last week when we had talked about this I was waiting for my fourth to be installed and it was installed yesterday so I'm I haven't even seen it yet Brad was in the shop uh, getting it installed and supposedly everything went all right. So I'm going to go on today and check it out. And I was going to say, so are we done right now? So you're going to go play? <laughs> the, oh, I, am super excited to go play. Uh, I've got to go pick up my motorcycle first, but then I, Dude, yeah. Just go to the show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and actually since then I also bought the orange has a, a 90 degree single-sided trunnion. So I bought that and then he's making me a indicating palette, fine center of rotation. Nice. Yeah, that'll be fun.
1: I can't wait to see what you guys do. Are you guys going to do any like tombstone type stuff on it where you just have production? I guess you don't do enough production, but I
0: guess the right product, right customer, you might. There's one customer right now that I just took an order from that I I am going to make a production fixture like that. I'm going to try to get one complete part per cycle. And so uh, I think it's going to be like a three sided trunnion or three-sided tombstone with an end cap as well. And so I'll do thir- like up one, two, and three, and then the rotary up on the very end of the fixture. And hopefully I can make it so all the clearances work and yada, yada. Yeah. Now, it, it's, it's permanently
1: installed in your machine, right? Like you can't take it off and remove it when you want the whole table back?
0: Not easily. Okay. Like you can unhook the the wires but the wires there's no quick disconnects on the fourth itself like okay. everything is is underneath the panels uh actually funny enough somebody on the discord just reached out because they just bought a r450 that has two of the same fourths, and he was like what can i do about this and i was like i don't know like you could buy some connectors and make make a quick disconnect i don't see why not sure so i i might look down that road as well you know get some mil spec connectors and cut the back panel for them and all that stuff. Sure. I, I mean, I'd have to, I'm trying to think of what kind of cables you could do there for that, but there's gotta be something. Yeah. Well, I, I would just copy all of the normal, you know, push and then twist to connect fittings that are on like the kitty and stuff. Like but it, it's got a million of those for everything from like the coolant pumps to well,
1: there, Now you've got, you've got the kitty just sitting there. You can steal connectors from it.
0: <laughs> no, I'm, a, I'm trying to sell it. still, <laughs> I actually, I just got somebody else saying they were interested over it, over email yesterday. So i got to send nice. him some pictures and stuff. And then Travis was still talking about coming down and see it. So if anybody wants a 1991 house VF1, let me know.
1: I'm going to, I'm going to sell that here soon too. I need to get it listed. Cause I know it's going to take just as long, if not longer to sell than your kitty as cause it's equally weird.
0: Yeah, but like somebody could put that in their garage at least. Like, I think the people, the thing that scares people off the kitty is it's like a 12,000 pound beast. That's, that's fair. Yeah.
2: There's a
1: big, there's a, I mean,
0: yeah. I
1: think your kitty weighs more than double what my OSPF one weighs. Yeah.
0: That's a good point. So I I, think you'll do all right. Yeah. Yeah. You do. uh, I mean, it's it's like such a, it's such a cool machine. Like the, Say what you will about like the actual functionality of a plastic shell on a CNC machine, but like just the fact, the lo- looks of it, like the spaceship icebox look, oh is yeah, really cool. But I will say what I want about that. And that I'm
2: very <laughs>
1: I should say House learned their lesson quickly. They only did it for one generation. I mean, it wasn't even a generation; like, it was a year that they did that and it was a terrible year for CNC machinists everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> that that plastic housing is a terrible idea. I, I remember shortly after I got the machine, I had a draw bar problem and the machine dropped in my case, a spindle speeder. So it dropped a spindle speeder out of the, out of the tool holder and just dropped it onto the table. And then it bounced onto the, onto the, the housing. It went through the housing. <laughs> and of course it was full of like one at the time. So, I mean, I it was i mean it wasn't that much on that one side but it, it, 10 gallons of coolant just come pouring out of that part of the machine um, right and of course adding insult yeah. injury right and i'm like, well i guess uh, <clears throat> time to fix that draw bar and uh bust out the plasti weld <laughs> to fix this thing so yeah some some plastic welding and then some fiberglass epoxy to reinforce it and, and uh Fixed that problem and it held cooling again and still does. But it was just like, oh gosh, seriously? That would never happen on a metal machine. Created on a metal machine, probably would have broken the spindle speeder. Yeah. 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 Cushion the fall. I was like, really it. The spindle speeder was fine. It was totally unharped. <laughs> it wasn't even a dent on it. So.
0: Oh man. That's terrible. <laughs> oh man. But yeah, uh, so that's... Got the fourth installed. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks. It's been great. I finished up a a rush order over the weekend that was like just killing me. Very tight tree positions and and tolerances and all that. So it was nice to get that done Sunday. And uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much about it. We're still slammed, so I'm keeping my head down and just trying to work through all this work that I have. Well, I'm glad I, I could tell last week when we were talking, you were... You were internally stressing about the job you were about to do when we finished recording. Well, it it took till, well, I guess it was technically Monday morning at like 1am to get it all done, but I got it done. (laughs) Nice. Nice. Has the customer received it yet? Were they? they Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I overnighted parts. They were super happy. Everything went together well. And, and that was, it was a good, and like, I was still stressing even after shipping, I was like, you know, everything I checked on my end with my gauges, said it was good, but we'll see. Like, we'll see if it actually assembles how they think it will and and works how I think it will. But yeah, it all went good.
2: Nice. Yeah.
0: Well, that uh, rounds out the episode to the last question I ask everyone, which is, what did you research this week? Well, I answered this question last week and and we got into a side topic discussion for a while. Yeah, you you Mm -hmm. sent me down
1: a rabbit hole as well. I sent you down a rabbit hole. But honestly, it's still the same thing. I haven't haven't had like any new topics this week, so I I, like got a new house. But one of the things I've been trying to do is is do rain rainwater collection. So I've been researching and and kind of designing that out and drawing out the systems and how I want to do it. And so rainwater rainwater collection systems. And then I've also been researching permaculture design and building swales stuff in my backyard and front yard too to help me take care of the plants that I don't have currently, but I want to have, I have planted a bunch of trees lately, so I don't want to pay for water. And it's like, okay, how can I, you know, the, uh, 11 inches of rain that falls on Arizona or on Tucson a year. I want to utilize every ounce of it as best as I possibly can. So yeah,
0: it's I'll like in three
1: days. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say, and that was last week. Yeah. like, like actually the day we filmed last year last year, the day we filmed last week was the coolest day on record in July since, what was it like 1919? Oh my oh. goodness. Uh, <laughs> it, again, it was the coolest day that July has ever seen. And then how much rain did we get
0: that day? We got like an inch and a half of rain later that day. I, I want to say it was like three to five inches that entire weekend. It was, oh, yeah. it was still like Rain. it was so much rain in a very
1: short period of time. But because of that, I spent a lot of that time, including the morning re-recorded, like headed over to your place after being at my house and watching how the rain was falling to like digging things out. But, uh, so yeah, I spent a lot of the weekends modifying the swales and basins and various things that I'd already built to, uh, hold more water, and redirect it in various places.
0: Yeah. And Cause that, was, that was what sent me on my deep rabbit hole was you talking about the Tucson swales. And so for anybody listening, who's interesting, interested, look up Tucson swales and it's these, these holes more or less or large. I don't even know how to describe them. They're, they're large areas of land that they dug deep and then built up berms. Uh, the CCC did it in the thirties and they are green. Like they're, they look like, you know golf course holes in the middle of the desert. Just, just by moving some dirt. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. Crazy. I We should go on a hike out
1: there. One of these days. Well, we would definitely do that. I was like, oh, I'm glad to have uh, sent you on that rabbit hole. Cause I, I, yeah. I, I'm like, I, I've lived in Tucson for a little over 10 years now. And I think I found out about those things like a year ago. And I was like, wait, how many times had I driven out here to the desert museum and driven right by these? and not known they were there, how many people don't realize this hap, this happened in the thirties and how much it changed, how much they created a microclimate in this specific area of the desert, just by moving dirt.
0: Okay. fascinating it's, to me. Just by yeah, it's
2: just so the cool.
0: water better. So that was also part of what I, I looked at this week, thanks okay. to you, um, <laughs> Cause yeah, then I was telling my wife about it. She was like, oh, I did training with the Tucson watershed and there was some guy teaching this class and I thought it was the guy you were talking about, Brad. Brad Lancaster. Yeah. But it turns out it was, it was not, it was somebody else who apparently is on the very similar path and maybe worked with him or something. I'm
1: sure they know each other. (laughs)
0: Yeah. But, uh,
1: yeah, Brad Lancaster's a fun guy, fun rabbit hole to go down to of. looking up his Ted talk and then his various times he's been interviewed over the last couple decades, uh, of the things he's done here at Tucson. (laughs) We won't go into it again, but, uh, anybody interested, Google Brad Lancaster, Tucson, it's pretty entertaining the way he changed parts of the Tucson landscape, just by, uh, doing things that should have been legal, but
0: were at the time illegal. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then I'm trying to think if there was anything else this week Nothing super, I, I bought a 50 millionth indicator because I was making those tight tolerance parts. Wait, like, you didn't have one? No, I had a, a few one-tenth indicators, but I wanted something with really low trigger force because it indicating those parts in for the the side offs were, I, I mean, I can get it done with a one-tenth, but I was like, uh, I would like a really low f- trigger force indicator sure. for this. So, Which one did you get? The brown and sharp one. Oh, Nice. I find I, a new open box one on eBay for like 150 bucks. So nice, That's can't No, <laughs> not at all. I I was good. I
1: there are very few tool, few tools I'd have gotten over the years that that I that I have have thought, man, I should have bought that five years before. But that was definitely one of them when I got a 50 million indicator that I was like, this this is something I I should have bought five years ago. I actually that was you know when. I don't know which half of the recording it was in, but that, that period of time where I was working as a manufacturing engineer at one of the local aerospace firms, they didn't have one. And I, I, I remember like there was one day I was just, I, I was, they needed help in the machine shop. So I was working on one of the off machines and I realized the, uh, the probes were out of calibration and I went and asked for a 50 millionth indicator, just cause I'm like, if I'm, if I'm going to dial this probe tip in, I want to get it as perfect as I possibly can. Right. And he didn't have one and I was just like, all right, well, this is going to wait till tomorrow then. So I brought my own in, <laughs> <laughs> and dialed in all the probes the next day. Cause they were all out of concentricity a little bit, it was driving me honkers. actually, that yeah. was one of the more funny things. They couldn't figure out why this part was out of spec. Like why this one particular machine has kept making parts out of spec. And so they just had me, like he, he was out sick one day and they're like, can you run his machine? And I was like, sure. So I did. And I quickly was like, this is why his farts are out of spec. They're all out of spec. The exact amount of of spec that his probe was out of spec. Goodness. And Yeah. I I religiously check my probe to make sure it's perfectly concentric and perfectly calibrated. I've been bitten by that a couple of times over the years where I kept being like, why is this? Why is this out five tenths? It's only five tenths, but why is it out? Like, why is something that has been perfect and solid and consistent for a hundred parts now out five tenths? Right. I could figure it, figure it out. Cause it was like, this was, yeah. And I finally checked the probe and I was like, ah, oh, that's why. <laughs>
2: <It was out. laughs> um,
1: I guess it wasn't five tenths. It was five thousand. It was out, but it was just like such an annoying amount. of just like, really? It's such a tidy amount, but it was affecting every.
0: Well, and you know the worst is when you start seeing things out consistently and you're like, Great, this is a process issue, not a random happenstance. Right. Well, there's in my experience, there's almost never random happenstance. It's always process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean you might like pick up a chip on a tool or something and be like, Oh, well that that part was bad and the next part was fine. But like when when you start seeing consistently, you're like, everything has shifted five thousand. You're like so my stop moved or my probes out of calibration or my vice <laughs> moved or <laughs> like, yeah, super
1: annoying, super annoying, which is also why I use probing processes now to double check everything. Yeah. So I, I have way too many, way too much time wasted in probing processes, but, uh, I think they they'll worth it every time.
0: I, I think, I mean, John Miller the, from way of the mill, he, he put it like, that's the That's the way of automation that we almost all have access to. So like, there's a a very good reason to use it. Absolutely. There's a couple of, couple of programs I have written where I have put all of mine.
1: I can't think of what the proper term for this is, but I put certain aspects of the probing routines inside of block delete. So I can (laughs) hit block delete and it, it skips it. I can't think of what using that particular character is called. Probably a name for that in program. Backslash or forward slash? Well, yeah, but like, is there a name for like yeah, no, it's a backslash, but like what is that? Is there a programming term for having
0: single? Oh, I I don't know. I'm sure Option, there is. Optional skibbing. I'm no programmer.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well
1: anyways, since neither one of us know backslashes. Yeah, so I'd throw a backslash on a bunch of on certain aspects of the programming routines where I'm like, Okay, I know every ten parts if I just have this turned back on which that's one thing I had not done on a couple of programs is have it set up. So only probe this every 10 times. That'd be an even better way to do it. It's have some logic in there. So if this program is right 10 times, redo this aspect of the code. I have not gone to that level on these programs. That's a fun the fun point. stuff. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's also a fun way to do it though. If you're like, okay, I have this where I want to double check myself, but only so many parts, the simple way is throw a certain aspect of probing into block delete in some way so that you can just skip it when you don't need it and save in some cases, two or three minutes of probing time.
0: Yeah. Well, and like at a more basic level, like if you are a programmer, CNC programmer, and you're feeling bored, you're like, I'm all I'm doing is programming stuff, pick up the macro book or do some research into macros and just write some simple macro programs. And then you'll instantly start having more fun. Oh, absolutely. The first time I started messing with writing my own macros,
1: I, I remember coming home f- from a day of work, and my wife would be like, "How you doing?" And I'm like, "My my brain hurts. Like my brain physically is exhausted right now. Do not ask me a complex question." <laughs> and it is now definitely the point. It's quite easy, but it took me a long time. It's a different. It's a different way of thinking. But once you get your brain in that headspace, and wrap your head around how to do it, all of a sudden it becomes really easy. And you start seeing appropriate routines as like, yes, I can do this. This is awesome.
0: Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like a simple one I wrote r- fairly recently, uh, one of the Doosan vertical mills at work has a 60 tool chain. And so right. when you're manually loading tools, it takes forever. You're like, oh, tool one. And then it just like sits there and chugs and then eventually changes tools. And then you have to, you know, put it in the manual and blah, blah, blah. And so I wrote them a macro that you just call G 65 P 7,001. A is your first tool, B is your last tool and you hit go and it just starts cycling through the tools. It grabs tool one, you put tool one in, you hit go again, grabs tool two. It does all that. And they were like, dude, this is amazing. Thank you so much for doing it. I had one of my coworkers complaining about it. And I was like, I can fix that. Don't worry about it. Like I got this like. Remarkably simple
1: a lot improvement to daily life.
0: Yeah.
1: So yeah, that's nothing but saving some button pushes, but it saves a lot of button pushes by the time we are done.
0: Exactly. Um, yeah. And I mean, it, they were super happy about it. Like that was the whole thing is I didn't run that machine that often, but I heard them complain more than once about that problem. And I was like, I I'll, I'll fix it. I'll figure it out. I want a fun project anyway, right now. Was, was probing each tool
1: into diameter and length in that same operation. So every time you hit before it would
0: switch to the next tool, would it measure and do all that too? It would have been if that machine had probing. (laughs) Well, We actually don't probe too much at work anymore because it's all, we have a tool setter in our tool crib, a CNC tool setter, and then it can post out a full list of uh, tool offsets. So we just send G10 lines to the machine, you run that program, it loads all the tool offsets and you go. I have always thought that utilizing a a uh,
1: offline system like that would be incredible in some ways. Like it'd be great in some ways, but terrible in other ways. I could certainly see how in a high production facility, those could be
0: invaluable. Yeah. I, I think if you have like five plus machines, maybe or 10 machines, sure, it's amazing. But like personally, I prefer just loading them in the speedio and hitting set tool one through 20, because I know that they're all going to be the same on that that tool setter i can walk away i'm already not doing work on that machine but, but that's also because i'm doing prototypes like at work it's all proven processes it's like load the tools set up your part and go whereas for me it's like well i know i've got probably another 10 minutes of setup and thinking and, and programming and tweaking anyway so i can waste five minutes setting all tools sure i mean i kind of used a tool presetter i guess i still do i kind of use a tool
1: presetter concept on my cost VF1, because it doesn't have probing. It doesn't have anything. I mean, it's just long, long before any of that existed. I guess that's not true. It was long before it was available easily, but probing did exist then. Already, I had no good way of measuring tools and setting tool offsets. And I'm like, I do not want to physically touch off every single one of these tools. Every time I have to load mm-hmm. in a new thing that is going to drive me absolutely bonkers very quickly. And it's also just, um. Easy to make mistakes when you're doing manual touch off like that. So I, I probe every on, on that machine. I have a Heimer probe. I probe mm-hmm. everything in based on the Heimer. in my, I'd have a height gauge in my height gauge. I programmed a, like it did that, it had two offsets I could set. So one of them is zero, which is just the base of, you know, you lower the thing all the way down to the granite surface plate that lives on that zero. I had another offset that I could program that could save in that memory and I zeroed it out on the height of the hymer. So I built a little cat 40 tool holder inverted directly next to my height gauge and directly next, uh, like just off of the, the like level with the bed bed of the, uh, granite surface plate. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah, zero out then on the, the hymer when it is probed in and everything is based off of where the hymer is, it's just kind of a weird way of probing everything. And so it was kind of working as an offline tool setter because I could measure everything while the machine is running and then go in as soon as the program ended, throw in a new drill bit, type in the correct length, which I would just write on a sticky note, stick on the mach- stick on the tool. Okay. that was, that was kind of like an off offline tool setter, but nowhere near as cool. Cause it was definitely
0: fully paid. <laughs> yeah. But then I don't know that we, we go back and forth at work. If we even use the CNC capabilities. Like we use the C quite a bit to focus tools or do a spun profile and pick up the sure. true X and Z, but, uh, the macros for the C and C stuff, they're only as good as the person who wrote them and they're only as good as the data you feed them. So like yep. you can do tool tip finds and all that, but like, if you have a piece of dust that you forgot, or it happens to just miss the tool tip, then it just keeps going up and misses everything. and Right. Like, it can be just as annoying as just throwing it in there and doing it manually anyway, but it's still a really cool piece of kit. Like I, I'm, I'm glad we got it and it, it makes, you know, the run out we get on there versus the run out we get on the machine is within a couple tenths, like maybe one or two tenths. So oh, that's nice. super nice that like he checks all the run out before it goes out to the floor. And very rarely do we have a run out issue anymore. That is the one thing I do really love about ProBay, but that I wish
1: my You know, like setting the length of tools, isn't that difficult, particularly with my little weird offline tool setter, but not being able to properly probe in diameters, because I mean, yeah, there was once a time where, you know, I thought an eighth inch end mill was an eighth of an inch, (laughs) but at (laughs) the moment I realized that was not the case and you can't, I don't know of a manual way to really do that, to figure out the actual diameter of the tool. I mean, you can try to mic it, but that doesn't work on a three flute end mill. right? And, and I just, it was driving me bonkers. So sometimes I will, uh, take the tool I'm about to load in my VF one, load it into my VF, my, my newer VF two probe, the diameter, take that measurement, type it in, and then, you know, that's one nice thing about having two machines. You can just swap back and forth, but, uh, that is, that ties up two machines at once and it's super dumb, Right. but, uh,
2: yeah.
0: I definitely am jealous of all the guys with the laser tool setters. Oh my god. You know, I, I, like I was watching fifty fifty knives um doing all that stuff on his Micron, I think it was, this morning on Instagram, and I was like, man, I'd really love like a Blum laser tool setter. I that would be super cool. Or what was this? I guess it was, it was like this
1: was probably a month ago. Um I was machining some of those 3D printer beds, specifically some of the three hundred and fifty millimeter ones. Um, <laughs> And as I was pulling one of them off after doing the edge engraving, I accidentally bumped my tool setter. Um, Oh no. Didn't break anything. Didn't do, but I, I visibly saw it move and I was just like, crap. Now I have to dial that thing back in. (laughs) I, I will take dialing in. I, I I could dial probe tips in all day long, but dialing in the actual tool setter and getting that thing perfectly level. Oh my gosh, such a pain in the butt. That is not an enjoyable process. I just was annoyed, but yeah, so that's where I'm like, oh, laser would be really nice because bumping that I I'm get- I'm probably wrong. I've never had a laser probe
0: like that. So they're probably just as easy to knock
1: out of alignment, but, uh,
0: probably. Yeah. I mean, I know the ones that are like on horizontals where they span the, the tombstone. Those ones can be knocked out of alignment really easily. <laughs> yeah. I would
1: imagine. I mean, when you've got a beam going that far, it doesn't take long for the tiniest amount of movement to become a lot over distance. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: But before I, I wrap up, I will tell, cause I don't think I've told it on here. The story, the first time you actually helped me out, speaking of bumping probes was oh when gosh, I, I forgot broke the, my, my probe tip. So I was in the machine seating apart, like an idiot, like under the spindle. Like I, I, I don't remember if it had started cutting and I was like, oh, did I seat that? And I went in there with a hammer. And as I swung back to seat this part, I clipped my probe tip and it came off. and hit me in the face. I was like, what, what was that? And then I looked up and I was like, my probe tip's gone. And I was like, I don't have a backup. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I, what am I, I guess I can set X and Y like a, an animal and you know, we use an edge finder. Like, I was animal. like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait. Brad's in town. And he might have one. And I messaged you and you're like, yeah, I don't even use the, the six millimeter tips. Like all, all the stuff I use is tiny. Right. I'm going to use it. You gave it back to me and I'm pretty sure I put it down
1: on my workbench then. And I know for a fact it's still sitting in that exact spot. <laughs> it has not moved. I have not even properly put that six millimeter one away because I never use it. Yeah. Although that I mean, remind me, I need to go order a new one because I, uh, I bent one of mine the other day. Like it didn't break, but it bent. Ooh. And, uh, I need to, uh, get a backup because I swapped into my backup, but
0: Yeah, I've got to get a backup too. Cause I, I pretty much stopped using a six millimeter after using yours. Cause I bought a two millimeter at the same time. I bought my sure. six millimeter backups and personally, I find it way more useful cause I can seat parts way down in jaws and still pick up the edges of them. And sure, you know, get down into tiny little counterbores and all that stuff. I, for me, it was just, I needed something small enough that I could probe the internal
1: diameter of a pivot hole, which for the most part, the smallest pivots I ever use are three uh, sixteenths of an inch. And I just needed to be able to easily probe three sixteenths. And sometimes I made them like, man, I need smaller, but I've thought about going one millimeter, but I, I don't know if I'm going to quite go that small. You're using a two millimeter as well. I think I'm using a two millimeter. Okay. Two millimeter is what 70. 79. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what I'm using, but I've thought about getting a one millimeter, but at that point now you're like accidentally picking up like a surface uh, surface imperfections. Yeah. I mean, that's already a thing with the two millimeter, but
0: it would be nice to be able to probe like eighth inch holes. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think modify what a lot of people don't realize when they're probing is that like, it takes a little bit of time to accelerate to your probing speed. Sure. So like, if you're putting a two millimeter ball in a eighth inch hole, you might not get a good, like, you'll probably get a good center find, but you might not get a good size because of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's quite true. Oh. It, it's similar to like, you know, you don't want to run a on size end mill in a hole or like a, you know, 100,000 a, a end mill and, a hundred and twenty thou hole. It's like, you're going to have issues cutting that to, to size correctly. Okay. Okay. So yeah, it, it's, it's nice having a small probe. I, I'm, I'm debating going to a three millimeter because I like the safety of having a ceramic shank and I can get a ceramic shank in three millimeter, but I can't get it in two millimeter.
1: Are you using a carbide shank or are you using carbide? Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I wanted something that would break at least because I know the Renishaw is pretty pretty adamant about that in their manual. So I think I'm, I mean, what I'm using definitely
1: bends. So it's not carbide, I, I, I think it's just steel, but it bends so easily that I've never been worried about it. I think I use mark. I can't even remember now. It's been a while. Last time I bought some, I think I bought. And you're down to one. Yeah. But it's been like three or four years since I bought it. And I one is none, remember. remember. Yeah, I know one is done. <laughs> I know talking about this today, I'm going to go break every day. I made one once. Really? I was in a bind. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, you know, half late, less make. Mm-hmm. So, so I did because I was like, I can't wait. I don't, I don't have three days for wait to MSC to do its thing or
0: whoever. And I didn't have a, <laughs> I didn't have a Dylan to call and ask if had well, well, now you do. So, true. I've got at least a six millimeter you can borrow and maybe a two millimeter. <laughs> well, you stepped out. In this case, it was like, I can't use, uh, a six
1: millimeter. Yeah. But, but I realized the on the two millimeter ones, if you get the Ruby tip, you can, you might break the shank, but oftentimes the tip is still good. And the tip is just glued on there. So you can pull mm-hmm. the tip off and install that on a new, on a new shank. If you've got the shank, the right size. So I made it. you've shank. got a lathe. <laughs> and yeah. So I made a new shank and then stuck the Ruby tip that I had saved. So I think I've saved the Ruby
0: tips from every single one I have ever broken. Really? As long as the Ruby tip did not break. It's so weird when they break. I had one break at work recently. I want to say it it just broke randomly. Like I was running a production and probing X and Y, like a a web, XY web. And I want to say I was on the, like the second to last part. And I look up and I'm like, oh, there's no Ruby there. Like, shapes perfectly intact. Everything's perfectly intact. No Ruby. And I'm like, what the hell? So I had to like replace it. I've no, I've
1: definitely had that happen before. I've never had it on any of the larger ones, but I've definitely had it on the smaller ones where I've, I've had the two millimeter ball just fall off the shank. I've, I've always been able to find it and then glue it back on. So I'll just, you know, make up a super tiny little thing of epoxy or super glue or something and just dab it on there. Cause it's not like they, you don't have a lot of force on them. So right. glue it back on
0: and then. Re-calibrate it; and they're good to go, as long as. Well, and I think you can. Sit. Anybody who's indicated a probe tip and knows that the shank is very rarely concentric with the ball—never. Never. <laughs> I. That would be that would be a miracle. Yeah. Well, Brad, I really appreciate you taking two weeks in a row to record with me. Sure. Uh, I, I felt good. terrible. I, I it wasn't your fault.
1: It just happened. It was a thing. We, yeah, we're trying something new by recording in person, and at
0: least people this, can understand this half now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and and I'd love to have you back on. Maybe if if I can get you recurring, I'll, I'll build myself a little noise insulating room in the shop, and we can we can just set up we can we can set up with different microphones.
1: We can... Oh yeah, there you go. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say I know at this point I can. I'm looking at the audio as it's coming across, so and be like, okay, my volume is way quieter than yours. Yeah, but uh. But
0: but they're both there. That's that's what there.
1: I. <laughs> they're both there, and I'm not and I'm not hearing enormous
0: amounts of uh, noise in the background. Yeah, yeah. It, it'll be much easier to edit this side for sure. Significantly um, less interesting background. So I really hope somebody tries to pick out everything John says. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'll be really interesting. I I, I I always listen to the episodes through before I post them, so I'm interested to hear Wait, how much know? I can hear. Okay. Oh yeah. I could not handle re-listening to myself. I'm sorry. I, I will not listen to this episode. It's, it's okay. <laughs> I, I don't blame you. Quick, before we close, Patreon thank yous. Thank you to Andy Hunter and Brandon Poitras for joining the Patreon. I really appreciate you guys supporting it. Uh, I don't begrudge anybody for not being a Patreon member, but I really appreciate all you guys supporting mm-hmm. the, the show and keeping it going and keeping it fun. And uh, thank you again, Brad, for coming back. Where can everybody find you in case they forgot or I don't have it on the first part? I don't remember if we did. You can find me on Instagram
1: at Southern Dives or for my machining, for my, my manufacturing side of things. You could find me on Instagram at at 490MFG or at 490Manufacturing. And that is 490, the numbers, not written out.
0: Yeah, and it's uh, etsy.com slash shop slash 490designs if you want to go buy his stuff, which you all should. Yeah, you you can all buy some guitar parts or some weird Victorinox knife handles or uh, if you want to build a Vora
1: then you need a bed for your Vora and any other random thing I decide to make that I feel like, you know, dozens of people might want, I will make it, put it on Etsy. Occasionally awesome. for three. So.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks again, Brad. Thank you everyone for listening and we'll be back next week. Bye.